Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Bob Norris, thank you so much for being on the Mike Litton Experience. I cannot thank you enough. Well, I like, you mean I don't get paid for this? You don't actually, the pay is actually terrible for this. It's actually terrible. Yeah, so talk is cheap. Absolutely. absolutely. I was in the business for a lot of years. Yeah, I, I, I used to tell my listeners, talk is cheap. Yeah. And I've actually been told that um, I've actually been told by Phil that you've got some advice for me. So we're gonna we're gonna look forward to hearing that. So as you know, as we talked about before we hit record, our everybody has a story. Yeah. And our passion is to help them tell it. And here's what we know. We know that People are going to listen to this podcast. They're going to listen to your story and they're going to connect with you. There's going to be a number of things. It might be where you went to high school. It might be your favorite subject. It might be the fact that you were in radio for 42 years. It could be anything, right? It's not every day that I get to sit with a legend and hear your life story. So I'm super excited to have you do this and I cannot thank you enough for being yeah, well, I appreciate that. That's great enthusiasm we have. Right? I'm excited for you. So let's talk about where you were born. Okay, I was I was born at an early age. <laughs> In, uh, That's good news. Now, <laughs> so the doctors told me. Yeah, that was nice of them. Born in uh, Anoka, Minnesota. Okay. And uh, back in 1938. Wow. Okay. Almost a 39 baby. I just had a birthday a week ago, so oh, I just turned 85. And this birthday. is this is what the last day of 2023. Yes, sir. I've always dreamed that someday I could do a podcast in 2023, and we just made it by one day. I so, mean, I, yeah, so we I made so we made your dream come true. This is good news. This is good I wandered from here to there. You're thank, right. thank you. I was born on a. Uh, Actually, on a little dairy farm north yeah. of north of Minneapolis, my grandfather had uh, a business in Minneapolis during the Depression. He had a big lumber yard. Okay, they knew that times were going to be tough, so accountants told him the best thing you can do is buy land. So he went up and bought a small farm north of Minneapolis. Okay, was not even a farmer. Okay. But he bought land and lost, and lost the lumber yard as he knew it would happen. So anyway, so I was raised on that dairy farm. It didn't do well. We didn't have that many cows. Dad was a graduate of the University of Minnesota back during the Depression. But when he got out of there, no jobs. But anyway, so Dad had the farm for a few years. He finally leased it to a neighbor. So I worked actually on the farm. I started driving tractor baling hay as a custom baler, and I was 12 years old. The owner would send me out. I would check the hay for the farmers, and yep, let's bale it. So I had a lot of experience trying to be 
You know, it's great being raised on a farm. You have a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. Moving forward, I loved sports, but at eight years old, I came down with rheumatic fever. And I spent the whole summer in bed at eight years old. The reason I say that because by the time I was a sophomore in high school in a little town called St. Francis, Minnesota, I was playing some basketball and I noticed I, I got hit in the thigh and it was so sore, I couldn't even go out for practice the next night. And I loved, I was such a nut for stuff. My mother used to come and get me out of the hay mound in the winter I'd be out there shooting baskets. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I would go to practice even when we had a game that night. That's yeah. how radical I was. To, and I really wasn't that good a ball player. But I, I tell people they retired my number. The trouble is I was still wearing it at the time. That sounds like a Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> but so I at almost 15, then I got rheumatic fever again, and it really hit my heart. Uh, they almost lost me. I ended up in the hospital in Anoka and Minneapolis for three months. Finally came out of there, and it was another month or two before in the little farmhouse they could get me out of bed and I could, it was a big job to walk from the living room to the kitchen. They had to put a chair in between. So you don't realize you lay still that long, even as we get older, better learn to move around a little bit. Yeah. You know? And true. so that's true. And, and move, no, use it, you lose it, right? And my heart was a uh, 60% enlarged at the time. It had a terrible murmur. Well, back in the mid fifties, Doctors weren't near as alert on what, uh, what your heart can do as they found out later in life. Right. So I was told the only thing you're going to be able to do, Bob, for the rest of your life is just have a real quiet job, like an accountant, go in and sit down and don't do too much. That's the way I was told. Well, I was always so rambunctious and wanting to do stuff. So that whole year, my sophomore year, I had to take it over again. I, I was at home, but I would go out and do more things than I should. Oh, sure. And when I would, it would affect my heart and my mother would get after me and I would get so, such pains in my back from the heart, I couldn't hardly breathe. I'd be, <laughs> and I didn't dare let mother see that. So I'd go to my room and go in there and try to get my wind back. Uh, the reason I bring that out, Mike, because interestingly, okay, I guess I'm throwing a lot of things at, I always wanted to learn to fly. Yeah. I had a good buddy of mine that, who became an airline pilot, but I wanted to fly, but here I am then with a heart murmur. So the reason I say that, because I would go out and do more things, and by the time I was a, take, took my sophomore year over, by the time that I was a junior, I was getting in a lot better shape. Doing doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing, supposedly. Right. And he went back to the, my doctors and they said, I don't know what you've been doing. He says, but we're going to let you play baseball. My heart had gotten that much better. Wow. Well, we found out years later, what do you do with a heart? It's a muscle. Yeah. Exercise. you got to use it. Yeah. See, they told me to lay down, don't do anything. And I had to die to do it. Yeah. So I learned something and then... They wouldn't let me play football, it was too, or, or basketball, but any baseball. So, let's 
Let's see. Let's move on to. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, excuse me. You're all right. You're all right. What was your favorite thing about growing up where you grew up on that dairy farm? My favorite thing? I guess I just, I loved doing something different. Uh, the neighbor of ours, his name was Bud, was kind of my second dad. And uh, he didn't have any kids, uh, he and his wife. So they kind of took me in, I guess. I loved going, doing a lot of different things. Um, I loved driving the tractors and the big equipment at a young age. Um, as far as what I loved, I don't know of anything in particular would be. Uh, okay. playing, playing, we used to play a little baseball out in our uh, pasture. Uh, I remember getting third base all over my pants. <laughs> that, that's what we grew up with. You know? but, <laughs> Third base would actually stick your face. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So we used the bases. The, okay. Yeah, the company. <laughs> the manufactured hay. That's right. The yeah. natural bases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was natural. Yeah, we were into that at that time. We didn't know it. Yeah, based on other things. We were trying to recycle things. So, so you grow. So you grow up. You go. Where do you go to high school? Okay, I went to high school with a little one called St. Francis, which has become. You know, kind of a suburb of Minneapolis mm -hmm. now. They've grown Minneapolis has grown so much. Uh, anyway, I, first let me say I, I had an older brother, Sildu. He's uh, he's been a pastor for many years. In fact, he still helped out at 89 years old. He was up at Palo Alto and filled in for a while yeah. just a year ago. So I'm pretty proud of my brother. Oh, but awesome. anyway. He, he waltzed on through school and skipped grades, and then I come along, and not quite so bright. <laughs> and so, and I knew, I used to sing some with my brother and my sister, but never, to me, yes, I, I gotta be playing ball. I don't have time to be sitting here doing this. Yeah. I look back, and the good Lord has led me through so many things, and I look back when I became later on in life a, a born-again Christian, I look back how God had his hand on my life, because I remember I was, after I missed a whole year of school, of course I'm dropped back one, I had a terrible attitude, I just didn't care about anything, if I could get a hold of a beer somewhere, the, you know, he would. One day a music director, a guy who had actually played trumpet for the Bob Holt Band during World War II. Wow. <laughs> Loberg was his name. It's funny mm -hmm. I remember that. I'm walking down the hall one day and he, and he comes out and he says, Bob, puts his arm around me. He says, I need it. I need a strong man like you look like, he says, to play the big bass horn. He says, you could do that. I look back and he some way knew how I was mentally, you know, I needed to get something to be interested in. Yeah. So I was, and I was, you know, the sophomore then, and he took me into the band room and I saw some of these young kids who were two, three years younger than me playing these instruments. And I says, me and my big ego, you know, I says, well, if they can do that, I could do that. Okay. So I started playing the big old bass horn. Well, then I, of all things, got into the choir. So here I am singing, and then I got into some drama. We did the high school plays. Mm -hmm. I think my two years of that, I 
got into that. And then once in a while, oh, I was president of my class for two years in a row. There you go. But, but we had about 30 people. Sorry. <laughs> Nobody wanted this. So I, Did you run out of votes? <laughs> so it wasn't much of a campaign. No, anyway. that's all right. That's but, right. Hey, you, you, you rose to leadership, right? It, when it, nobody else was willing to take it, you took it. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that says something. Well, I always, I always liked people. I had a lot of fun in school. And some teachers enjoyed that humor. Some people, Jackie Gleason said, he said, he only went to through eighth grade. I remember reading his book. He says, School is no place for a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. The it's like, don't appreciate it's it. like one day yeah. I show up in class and I forgot <laughs> my book, a history book, and a, and a friend of mine, Ralph, and I told the teacher, I says, me and Ralph forgot our books. She says, Ralph and I forgot our books. I says, oh, did you forget yours too? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Well, some people enjoy it. They don't it. appreciate it. Some didn't. They just don't have appreciation for it. <laughs> so while I'm, as I'm president of the class, so I had to do a few things, you know, uh, well, I don't, it would be um, certain things we do to represent the class, and, and I would speak on a, on a PA microphone system. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a teacher one day come up to me, and he says, uh, Mom, he says, you know, you've got a good voice. He says, you ought to get in the radio. Mm -hmm. I go, so anyway, I get out of school and Minnesota rehabilitation, clear back in the 50s, Minnesota was very good about somebody with a medical condition like mine, mm -hmm. got a hold of me and said that they would pay for my education. Really? Yeah. So uh, I'm not much into socialism, but <laughs> wow. I said, wow. Yeah. So I kept that in mind and I said, this is what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I really don't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. So they tested me, you know, all this. And it always showed I needed to be good with people. Yeah. You'd be good with people. So that's kind of a broad scope. Well, I can see that, though. I mean, you're, you love people. And, and, it's, and it's obvious, I you do. know. And, and people love you. Um, you and I hit it off immediately. Yes, yes we did. And, and it's done nothing but get better. You know what I mean? It's just um, I love every second that I spend with you. You're such an amazing light, and you're so much fun to talk to, and you have so many amazing stories. That's the thing that just, you know what I mean? And you've, you've lived so much life, like you've lived so much, and you've experienced so much. And we're not going to have time to, to cover everything, but yeah. I, I, do, I do have a quick question for you. So yes. you graduated high school. Yes. If you look back at high school, did you have a favorite subject? Science, uh, the chemistry, and okay. that type of thing. I had a great uh, chemistry teacher, and, and uh, yeah, uh, shop class. I like shop. Yeah, I did too, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I haven't thought too much about that. I guess it, it would be, and I wasn't too bad a student, you know, but. Uh, once they got me straightened out again, and I got involved in music, got into a quartet with my sister mm -hmm. and uh, good friends of ours. I'm Bob. My sister's name is Mary. I, one of my good friends' name is Bob. Guess what his sister's name was? Mary. Mary. Yeah. In the, we had a quartet. I <laughs> love that. But <laughs> and Bob played the guitar and stuff. But anyway, that was kind of fun. We did those things. But anyway, uh, so so the state so the state tests you. You test for being a people person, 
right? Yes. And and they decide and somehow they decide to get you in radio. Is that what happened? Well, here's what happened. I got out of got out of high school and I really I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Later on, Dad had another guy and I paint the house, paid us for that. My folks work at a state hospital for the mentally disturbed people mm -hmm. in Minnesota, which I'm gonna put a plug in here. A number of your homeless people, people in prison, because I had experience, I worked in a state hospital, I worked daily with them, we were trained different mental illnesses, mm -hmm. how to take care of people. And anyway, one day I said, well, I'll, I'll go to work at the state hospital. Okay. So I did. And I ended up work. I was only 18 at the time, ended up working on mm -hmm. what we call the untidy senile ward. Okay. The worst one there was. Okay. And in Minnesota, these were three-story buildings. We have 1,100 patients on the grounds, mm -hmm. no air conditioning. Minnesota is so hot and humid in the summer. Mm -hmm. And you take, when you've got clients or patients that a lot of them don't even know enough to go to the bathroom. So you're, you're cleaning up, you're more of a cleanup person. I told, I used to tell them in class, they're, they're telling you, give shots and all that. I said, you know, if you teach me how to pick up poop off the floor easier, I'd learn something because that's what might be, it might be more effective. Yeah, it would be, yeah, more. But anyway, in the summertime when I'd come to work, I'd go up on the third floor and I don't care how much we scrubbed the low wooden floors or whatever, the uh, this smell from the, you'd open the door and it, it still hits me. I got goose pimps talking about it, Mike. I mean, and I, I actually enjoyed the patients. I guess I'm wandering around here. Let me tell you a story mm -hmm. of uh, when I worked at the state hospital. Okay. We were taught to, if you get a chance to sit down and just listen to people. Listen, and you'd go to a table, there might be seven or eight people, guys sitting around. They would have, they'd all kind of be talking, but you'd have eight different conversations going on. Wow. You'd sit down, I'd be talking to you for a minute, and then I'm over here, and this guy, and these two are talking about different things. Right. Middle of winter. Not to each other. Yeah. About something. Else. Yeah. Right. So they're, yeah. I, have, I, had a little, I had fun with people. I had a little attorney, I'll never forget him, Barney Fikes, a little mm -hmm. Jewish guy out of St. Paul. I said, and he was just a short little guy. But he'd sit there like a judge, you know, all proud. He always, I'd say, Barney, I heard you were an attorney. And a damn good one, he'd say. He'd bang on <laughs> Barney was always fun. So I really? talked with him. And I had another, had, a, had one old guy that they would, they, we'd have to keep him in restraints all during the day. He just a mess. Mm -hmm. And he was too bad. He was so skinny. And I got to look at when, when you had served dinner, you know, when you got about two or three aides taken care of, we had, uh, I had 60 people on the floor, and I'd be by myself sometimes at night with these people. But anyway, you'd take them to their dinner, be on a metal tray, come up in an elevator and stuff. And this Barney, no, Barney was the attorney. I can't remember his name now. He'd take his food and, and he was always talking to his horses. Hey, no, no, hey, hey. I'd come in and I'd, and I'd talk to him. I'd say, how's your horses? I, he, 
jabbered something. But they'd bring him his food or somebody would, and he would, he would take the tray and tip it up. Well, no wonder he was so skinny. He dumped all his food. He didn't even. So I taught him to use his spoon. Mm -hmm. Here's a guy probably in his mid-70s, and I had to start all over just like you would with a baby. Yeah. I said, okay. And I'd slap his hand every time he'd try to, and taught him to eat. Bragging, but I just took interest in it. Sure. Well, he started to fatten up somebody. He looked better. Yeah. And I, and I, of course, the nurses always got a kick out of it because I always had a lot of fun with people. I found an old hat and I put it on him over his ears and that stuff, you know. I mean, but anyway, so I did, I did enjoy the people. Oh, yeah, the story I wanted to tell you we had a guy by the name of a Mr. Anderson, he'd been an optometrist. I don't know mentally what happened to him, but he hadn't spoken for seven or eight years. Oh he would sit and look at you like a monkey. He'd be sitting there and, and you, if, when you had to take him and put him in bed. And if you didn't lay him down, he'd still be sitting there the next morning. This is how far his brain was damaged. <clears throat> but you know, when I talked to him, he would kind of look at me like an animal would, then he'd kind of just he'd look at me. So every day I tried, when I was on shift, I'd, I'd try to talk. I said, Mr. Anderson, how are you? And I'd tell him what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I was also, at that time later on, I'll tell you about how I got into radio school, but I was mm -hmm. still going to school and working eight hour shift out at the state hospital mm -hmm. in school for five hours. So it got a little hectic. Sure. Anyway. So let me ask you this. What were you in school for when you were working at the mm -hmm. home? Uh, at the hospital, yeah. yeah, they had special classes that we had to attend to so, teach so how to give shots. Oh, gotcha. to, okay. Yeah, okay. it was part of our training with the job. So that was the five-hour thing. Uh, five-hour. That was the that was the. Class oh no, I was at Brown Institute in Minneapolis. Okay. I, in fact, I had to quit the hospital because I couldn't attend their classes, and so I couldn't. I lost my job, but oh. Talk about that in a second. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, the reason I want to talk about this, Mr. Anderson, I'd put him in bed and I'd lay him down and say, Good night, Mr. Anderson, whatever. Of course, he'd just look at you. So one night, I'm putting him to bed. I had to walk him down into the big uh, area. And our head nurse had come upstairs. She's talking to me about something. So we're standing there talking. And I, I was a smoker then, I had cigarettes in my shirt pocket. And this Mr. Anderson, he, he kind of reaches over and gropes at my shirt just to see that much action out of somebody. I was a little surprised. Mm -hmm. I said, would you like a cigarette? And he kind of looked at me. So I took one out, put it in his mouth, I lit it up, and he had a smoke yeah. while we're standing there. I went and put him in bed that night, set him on the bed, and I said, good night, Mr. Anderson. He says, Good night, Bob. He had not spoken a word for eight years. We had reports you had to do on your patients. Right. I put that in the report. The doctors even called me in and says, what have you been doing with this guy? You know? Wow. I said, I've been talking to him. Yeah. That taught me a lesson. Every patient after that, I was very concerned. I, I never tried to make fun of him. I was just saying. Yeah. I still remember that to this day. His wife, his wife would come. We we would only have very few visitors. Those patients were so far gone they wouldn't even have visitors. But this guy's wife would come at least once or twice a month, sit on the end of the bed, and of course he'd never say a word. He'd just look at his wife. 
So she came to me and asked me, I didn't, I kind of left, I left the hospital then a few months after that. Yeah. So whether he ever spoke again, I don't know. But I just had to tell that story. It's amazing how when you show interest in people, yes, no matter where they are, exactly, right? I mean, they could be completely here mentally, exactly, or they could also be in a whole different world of their own, yes. But you show interest in them, and it lights something in them. It's I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just, yeah, you know, you just like I had a I had a friend of mine who had a one year old little boy. And I was sitting with him, and we were having breakfast one morning, and we were meeting over this project that he wanted to buy. And he just kind of checked out. Like, all of a sudden, mid-sentence, he's not listening to me, right? And so I stopped, and I said, hey, what's, what's, what's distracting you? What's going on? He goes, well, you remember our son? I said, yeah. He goes, he hasn't spoken a word in two months. And he said, Mike, we're really worried. And I said, okay, so... He said, we're thinking of having him tested for autism. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Because this is the same kid, by the way, Bob, that three months before, when I would call this, 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 this client of mine, who's also a buddy, I would call him and we'd talk over his speakerphone in his truck. And that kid in the back seat would talk more baby talk than you could possibly imagine. He wanted in on the conversation. Sure. Right? So I would talk to him over the speakerphone, and I'd ask him questions, and just, right? And he'd try and answer. And you couldn't understand a thing he was saying. It was all gibberish, right? It was all baby talk. Sure. But he wanted to be in the conversation. The desire was there, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so I told him, I said, listen, when you go home, what do you do? He said, well, I hug him and kiss him and tell him I love him and talk to him. And I said, okay, well, stop doing that. And he goes, which part? And I said, no, no, tell him you hug him, you know, hug him and tell him you love him, give him a kiss, but stop talking to him. And he goes, what? And I said, just start asking him questions. Trust me, just start asking him questions. Because we're literally programmed to answer questions out of the womb. Sure. Okay? And I said, ask him questions. He can't answer, but just ask him. How was your day? Did you take good care of mama? Did you go see the birds? Just ask, 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 ask. And I said, what does he do when he wants something? He said, he points and he grunts. And I said, you know, I used to do that. And the neighbor lady had six, that was watching me, that was babysitting me, she had six boys. She didn't have time for somebody that was going to point and grunt. If I wanted something, I had to tell her what it was. So go home and tell Mama that you're going to get her on board with this, but tell her that you're going to make him tell you, point and tell you what it is before you get it for him. He's going to cry because he has you trained. Okay, let him cry. Make him tell you what it is. Three days later, I called him and I said, how are we doing? He said, well, we're not worried anymore. And I said, why is that? And he said, because we can't get him to shut up. <laughs> the difference, though, is he was talking at him mm -hmm. versus asking, you with me? You can talk at somebody and it shows a, mi a minor amount of interest. But if you sit with somebody like you did and ask him questions, mm -hmm. right? That was the key. Yeah. You'd ask him, and I guarantee you, he'd focus on you. He'd look at you, yeah. right? right? They Even when they're not speaking, they want to. You can tell. They're dying to say something. You just got to give them permission. Yeah, That's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, because everybody is dying to tell you their story. Yes. We just need to pull it out of them, right? So That's our right. passion is to help them tell it. Yes. Does that make sense?
Yeah, yeah. So what you did was magical. Well, yeah, I was blessed with that. My, I had very good parents. My mother had such a heart for everybody. If, if, if we ever said something derogatory about someone, she'd say, now you just don't know what they've gone through, so you don't judge, you know? So, yes, mother. Well, I you have walked a mile in their shoes, shoes, right? Yeah, you remember that's that, right. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I had a good mother doing that. Okay, so I'm working at the So hospital. what did you study at Brown? Pardon? At the Brown Institute, what did you study? Study and broadcasting. How did you and, do and, that? And, and engineering. I also had my first class FCC take up. Very good. So it took me a couple of years in radio school. So how did you end up in radio school? Okay, that's my next story. <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> this guy's running the show. Must be it. My brother had gone on through colleges and all this. I say that because I didn't show much interest. As I've done work one day and I'm riding with the folks back home. I says, Mother, I'm going to go to school. You are? What are you going to do? You know, she, she, I says, I'm not sure, but I'm going to get a hold of the rehab people again to yeah. see if they can help me. So again, they tested me the same thing. So just out of the blue, I asked this guy, I says, uh, is there any way the guys learn how to be a broadcaster? A lot of people who get into the broadcast business either been around radio stations or knew somebody, or I'd never been in a studio, I had no idea. I loved listening to the radio, of course, grew up with a big WCCO, Minneapolis 50,000 watt clear channel. Uh, Plus other stations, but that was one of my favorites. The guy says, yeah, there's a school. In fact, one of the best in the country is right here in Minneapolis. There you go. And he was right. Not, not just because I went there, but uh, Brown Institute of Broadcasting. And they, so, <clears throat> says, I'll make an appointment. You can go talk with it. Normally, you'd send a tape into the school right. before you could even get in. Right, because like audition kind of Yeah, they had morning classes, afternoon and evenings, but they only put 12 in a class. So it was pretty competitive. Yeah. So you had to have some kind of things that they, if, if you did something on a tape and they kind of figured they probably couldn't help because you've got a, you know, a problem with speech, you, know, you couldn't get in there. So anyway, yeah, so made the appointment, went over to Brown Institute. They just asked me a lot of questions. I, I figured out later, they're just asking to see, you know, how my voice would be and everything. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah you're in. So that was a 33-week 30, course in broadcasting. But I also, at that time, and I don't want to get too complicated, but radio stations that are directional stations, have to have to change your signal at night when the sun goes down. You need at that time you had to have somebody with a first class FCC license to work. We were called combo men. We were a combination engineer, although that's a fancy word. Out of that, I don't want to touch anything, but I legally, my brain, I knew certain things. Yeah. So I had to take a forty-two week course in electronics. Well, that's tough because even. At the school, they'd mentioned, it's tough 
if, if you're a creative person like on air and love people, then they go over here and study a circuit schematic. Right. They just don't mix real well. Yeah, okay. But I, stu I stubborn, staggered through it. So, But they wanted you to take about half of your announcing classes, then stop and go do all your engineering class, then come back and finish up so they can tune you up better again. For it to on be air. Air. Yeah, to okay. go on air. And they were, we had very good instructors. We had an old instructor that had been way back years ago, many years before you and me, uh, they had a blue and red networks, they were called. Later on, they became like CBS and NBC. But mm -hmm. this guy's name was Ben Hardman. He was an old network newsman. Mm. But Ben was a, he was, he was the final instructor. We had three different grades. You started in Studio B, as you got good enough, they moved you up to Studio B, then to Studio A. Hmm. We would have, I still remember a lot of things on enunciation, mm -hmm. your ING problems. We had stuff we had to read and practice ING, the cascading, falling, running, instead of running. Mm -hmm. and, and if you'd had, if you'd, uh, air on one of these words, you had to do a 50-page report with using that same word 25 times. One of the words that I missed twice, and we had what they call a word list word, was... Uh... <laughs> Me and my great memory. Did it end with I <laughs> Now, it's... Yeah. <laughs> I guess... Edit that out. There's a lot of there's a lot of ing words. Well, yeah, it wasn't an ing word. It was, you know, actually. Actually, okay. Yes, because we would read news, rip it off the wire, read news, we'd play records and so forth. But I happened to hit the word actually, and I slurred a little. Actually, both. I had to do it on Fridays. We had our post mortem classes. It's called. They tear you up for what you did during the week. Wow. They kept it fun, but they kept it very educational. Mm -hmm. We would learn to, you know, use uh, temperature, not mm -hmm. temperature. Right. The temperature outside, you yeah. know, that type of thing. And projecting and working with how you're forming words. Mm -hmm. I had a, one little problem with a Midwest thing. Uh, you'll find Midwest, you'll find people that a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. You see how you're forming it up here? Mm -hmm. Coffee. Learn to put that back further in your voice, coffee. Mm -hmm. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. Actually, I used to tell people, you know, that the only big difference between someone that has been trained with proper pronunciation and this type of thing is you'll, you listen to somebody on the radio and you, you enjoy it and you don't realize why it's because instead of because it's because those type of things yeah. and it just flows better mm -hmm. the a's be, the consonants before the with the consonant the for the vowels the apple if you get the apple, you're putting the and apple together. That's very important in broadcasting. Mm -hmm. I can listen, I'll watch a, somebody in, uh, like we're in uh, Yuma, Arizona. Yuma is a pretty good sized market, but they have a lot of startup people in their TV and radio. Mm -hmm. And 
I sometimes I'd love to go down and just help them. I'm being, I'm being critical, but I'm, I, I can tell right away if they've been to school and they got the these and thous or not, or their ING problem, you can tell very quickly. And it's hard for me to watch because yeah. that was- Oh, I can imagine. Because you I know, became program director years later. And I literally never went to school. I never went to broadcasting. Yes. I didn't get a degree or that kind of thing. No. I got into radio because I was frustrated. Yes, literally. I got into radio because I was frustrated by the fact that a bunch of people were losing their, their homes to foreclosure in 2011, yeah. and they were being lied to. So I ended up going to the local radio station in, here in San Diego, 760KFMB, yes. and I sat with the, with the station manager and I said, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to do this because I'm passionate about this, and, I, and he's like, can you start today? <laughs> I need a couple of weeks. But I ended up getting on the radio, and and I had a public speaking background, so I had that as that far as training, right? Yes. But I got on the radio, and we literally went from the least listened to hour they had the entire weekend lineup to number one in all of AM radio wow. in that time slot yeah. in eight weeks. In eight weeks, according to Arbitron, we went from 8,000 listeners for that hour to 16,000 listeners. Wow. And the reason we did it was because we told people the truth. We saved thousands of homes for foreclosure yes. in that eight-week period, but we told people the truth. We told them what was really going on with their home loans and what was really happening with their servicers and what, what an investor was and how this whole thing worked. Because nobody was, nobody was telling them the truth, right? And it was an amazing time, absolutely amazing time. We had a, a card rate that was discounted dramatically because it was the least listened to hour they had yes. by far in the entire weekend lineup. Yeah, we right. worked ourselves out of a job. We literally went from a di massively discounted card rate to the highest card rate they had in the entire weekend lineup. Yes. Because now we were attracting more listeners, right? So they could charge more. They yes. charge us, oh, yes. right? Yes. So I go back to my sponsors. I'm like, you want to pay twice as much for the same thing? <laughs> no. Well, but you know, it was it was part of what we had to do. We ended up moving to a different station, yeah. but it was an amazing, amazing experience, and it was something that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I enjoyed it because we made a difference. Yes, we really did have a bully pulpit that we could use to help people. And it was a very, very cool thing. It was a really cool time in my life. So, so not all of us have the Brown Institute, right? No, we don't have that kind of training. No, but you know, I've listened to you and just talking with you. You have some very good habits. I mean, I don't. Who am I, the professor of speech? Well, your opinion means more to me than most people. <laughs> so, so, so you go to, so you go to Brown. I go to Brown. You finish Brown. While I'm still at Brown, there was a gentleman, I can't remember his name, doesn't matter, out of Minneapolis, who was an, a, ch a chief engineer. In fact, he was one of the first there in the, in the Twin Cities to develop uh, FM stereo, Ooh. or develop stereo. They, they experimented, I don't know, clear back before we had stereo. The first time I ever heard stereo was at a big uh, equipment display there in the Minneapolis at their auditorium. Went over there and a guy had a, he put a headset on and he was playing music in it. First time we'd heard, because this was back in the 50s. Yeah. Didn't have it, whoa. So then later on they experimented with two radio stations. They would have you tune in to one over here 
for the right side yeah. and tune in another station and tell you which one and put that radio over here. Right. This side is playing the right track of a, of a song. Right. So you yes, say your stereo. Yeah. That was the beginning of it all. Isn't that and something? then it slowly evolved into where they could do it with the signal yeah. FM. Uh, they tried they actually created AM stereo later on. It's it's not quite as efficient efficient. It doesn't I'm getting carried away here. Well, okay, Brown Institute. Pardon your question. You mentioned that, and I experienced this with 760K FMB, but it, at, in the middle of the night, AM stations have to turn their signal down. When, the sun, when the sun goes down. Why? Okay. Because your radio signal, you have two signals come off an AM tower. Okay. You have what they call a ground wave okay. and a sky wave. Okay. Well, those sky waves will go up and they'll hit a layer. It's called the ionosphere. Okay. There, uh, we've got stratosphere, troposphere, ionosphere. Okay. That, that ionosphere layer has electrons in it for some reason, and an AM signal will not penetrate that. It'll bounce back off from it. Okay. Okay. So, but for some reason, that ionosphere is down much lower altitude. So, so your AMs don't bounce that far, okay. but as soon as the sun goes down, and God only knows why, that ionosphere goes up, I don't know what altitude, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Now, that changes your angle of the, of the signal. That's why you're driving down the road in a far off station at night, it'll come booming in on you, and you go, wow, and all of a sudden it's gone. But what's happening, that sky wave is bouncing down, hits the ground, boom, goes back up in the air, Hits it again. You're driving through the skips of it. Wow. Now, if you have a station back east on my frequency, which uh, the station I end up Montana KSCM, we were 1150 on the dial. Right. But you can have another AM on 1150. But you have to protect each other because at night that signal will bounce clear across the country. Well, you can imagine what a mess you'd have. Oh, sure. Each, you'd have all the interference in the yeah, world. Yeah. In fact, just to prove how far a signal can bounce, we used to go on at, at 3 o'clock in the morning at a testing time so they could check our frequency to see how close we're on to our actual frequency. Yeah. Yeah, and that checked because wow. you can wander off some. But we didn't have the equipment. Our engineers didn't have that kind of equipment. You had to do it from. We had a guy turn out in Oregon that would check our station. Because at night, they would allow you to go with your daytime signal. Yeah. And that guy out there could hear me very good. And I had All the way from Minnesota? Yeah. Well, Montana at the time. Oh, from Montana. Yeah, okay. This, okay. This, this is later when I end up in Montana. Oh, yeah. But wherever you're in, we have the direction of state. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. We will, though, I promise. Yeah. So, so you end up protecting. I'll tell you so how. they have to turn that back so that you don't have all yeah, this. Yeah, we have four tower arrays. Yeah, what you do, you end up uh, technically you you have one tower that works against another one, and they can set up a certain yeah. pattern. We could go north, south, strong, and you have certain signal strength of your pattern. Our pattern was like in a figure eight. The side we had to pull in, fifteen miles from us, you couldn't hear us at night. Gotcha. Okay. You could embarrass. That's how tight you can bring a signal in. Yeah. I think, okay, we're going to bore you again, folks. Right. 
That that I just always want to ask that, that question. Of, I never knew the answer. No, a lot of people don't. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people, when I tell them, don't care. Well, I would ask. I know. I would ask at, at KFMB, and nobody could tell me. Well, they couldn't. I mean, they, they just said, oh, it's just an FCC regulation. Oh, okay. yeah. No, but why? No, no. You know, I always want to know. You know what I mean? You'd have a mess. And we have, and the United States has, uh, how would say, we cooperate with Canada because yes. Canada can bounce all over us. Sure. Now, Mexico. They'll have 100,000 watt stations that can come with movement in on you. But anyway, um, oh, I'll tell you how that technology got developed on phasing antennas, it's called, for directional. World War II, clear out in the South Pacific. Excuse me, I've got to have a drink of water for a okay. second. <coughs> <coughs> World War II, islands way out there in the South Pacific, we would have the Japanese would be on one end of the island and our US troops on the other end of an island, for example. I don't know if it was the military, probably what military engineers that developed, they developed a, a system with towers that would phase against each other they could send a signal clear back to be heard in San Francisco, and these Japanese on this end of that island could not hear that signal. That's where that phenomena came in. Isn't that something? Yeah, so then it was applied to commercial broadcasts, and it is to this day. Yeah. You know, a lot of the things that we enjoy as technology in, in the civilian world yes. was started either by NASA or by the military. Yes. You know, the combination of Yeah, so. even our computers, I think, yeah. were started by the military. Yeah. But anyway, that's why, and now people ask, well, how come an FM station will be 100,000 watts, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, well, that's 100,000 watts of radiated power you, you don't have transmitters that big. You have antennas. You ever look at an uh, FM antenna, you'll see a bunch of rings around this, these poles that send up. Well, each one of those is an antenna. And if, I, if you and I had wanted 100,000 watts of effective radiated power, it's called, we would have a 10,000 watt transmitter, but we would put it into these things and, and we could bring it up to 100,000. I got you. 10 okay. times what we're doing. I got you. Okay. Now, a AM signal, that sky wave and that ground wave, is a much lower frequency. Mm -hmm. FM, we're talking, you know, 96 mega, mega cycles, really. Right. AM, we're talking thousand cycles. Right. We're, I mean, it's kind of basic, but we're talking a lot slower signal we're putting out. And you put out a slow signal, it's kind of like if you throw a ball and throw it easy, it'll, it'll follow every little hill and so forth. If you throw it fast, like, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it won't do it. No, right. F FM is pretty much line of sight. I don't care how much power you got. It's so fast, it's straight out there. Yeah. It won't go down and it won't go here and get shadowed. So that's the difference between the AM and, and FM. That's there. awesome. See, I never knew any of that. This is all the stuff no, we learned from hanging out with you. Yeah, well. So let me ask you a question. So yeah. you go to Brown Institute. Okay. Where's your first radio? All right, I did a little part-time at a station there at Anoka, Minnesota, but it was just weekend stuff. I, I did very little. I was still in school, 
It was fun for me to go to a station net or man, just to sit in the chair. And yeah, go. just try it out. Yeah. Just, and it's by the way, being in a studio, in a radio studio, with a microphone in front of you and a, and a sound person, you know, on the other side of it. I mean, there's something about that that's just electrifying, isn't it? I mean, it just, it just, I maybe it's just me, but it just, it would charge me up and I would do my hour every Saturday afternoon. I'd do my hour and then I'd walk out of there and I wouldn't touch the ground for like four or five hours. I mean, it was well, the darkest you're, you're a different bird. Well, I am, I am, that's true. That's true. But I just, there was something about being there and something about that, of something about broadcasting, something about, yeah. you know, it's just. It, yeah, the only thing, you, you didn't have, uh, I'm not trying to down what you're doing, I admire what you're doing. You were specialized in your real estate and yeah. you knew what you wanted to do went in. Now, when you've got to be there on a four-hour shift or six hours, about it, to me, later on, as I became a program director, I didn't have any announcers go over four hours yeah. if you're working hard at it, because it's hard. It's, it's not easy work. Yeah. You know, I never did that, by the way. Yeah, that, the most, that's the difference. Yeah, the most, the most I ever did was an hour every day, five days a week. Yeah. Uh, but, but and, it, and that took a lot. But it, that took a lot by itself. It did. Yeah. But if you did like a six-hour shift at night, go to go in here at six till midnight, yeah. it's work. Yeah. And it's hard if you want to go somewhere. And I, one of our instructors said, it's going to be. You never know who's listening to you. Who might say, "I want you." Yeah. And I don't care if it's you've been on that air six hours. You, if you want to go somewhere. You sound good. Yeah. Now I'm jumping. Up. I'm too And just as good. The sixth hour is the first hour. Yeah. yeah. And what's a little something I learned too, and, and program directors around the country will learn, if if you want to go to work for me, and and I needed a tape of what you sound like, you send me a tape. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you? When you do that, you're going to the studio. You're your very best. You're fresh. You, you cut it. You send it to me. Right. Now I want to. I want to hear. I want to drive through your town after you've been on the air and met out on a party the night before mm -hmm. and came on the air and they don't feel like you're sick. Yeah. You don't you're, feel like your wife's there. pregnant and you're, you know, because yeah. you teach guys when you come into that control room, you leave that world of yours behind you. Yeah. The audience couldn't care less. They right. want to hear. So that you had to mentally train yourself, forget what's going on in your life. Yeah. How are you still projecting? I want to hear you at 11.30 at night and you've been on the air and you've had phone calls from people, you got the boss called, I need this done. Small station market, especially you, you end up doing more than just sitting there. Yeah. Now I want to hear what you sound like at 11.30 at night. It's yeah. going to be a lot different than that tape that you, you see. Yeah. So you learned that. But I never drank more coffee in my life than I did when I was on radio. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, I, there was something about it that helped my, helped my demeanor, but it, and my energy level, right? But it also helped my voice. Sure. Oh, that, yes. that yeah. That warm liquid. Keep it lubricated. Yeah. Stay it's, away yeah. from dairy products. Yeah. yeah. Dairy products will clog up your throat. Yeah. yeah. You learn different techniques. Now, back to how, what happened to me. This guy that, was we started out the engineer that helped develop the the stereo bought a little radio station in St. Peter, Minnesota. It's about okay. 80 miles south of the cities. Gustavus Adolphus College is there, big deal. 
But that's kind of, you remember the old days of the, uh, uh, the Green Peak Giant, mm -hmm. the Valley of the Green Peak? Yeah. That's it. That's in St. Yeah. Peter and Lesur, Minnesota. There you go. We were right in the middle of. They called it the pea pack down there. Oh, the I love it. Are, yeah. There you go. So I went from dairy farming down there and down to pea pack country. There you go. So that was Green Valley. That's that's where the Green Valley. Oh was, my God. Valley of the that's Green right. Giant. That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay. I remember. Yeah. Now, so I'm at St. Peter, and uh, they they had been a country station. Okay. Now back in the fifties. It was hard to find many country radio stations. Really? You'd get we used to get one out of Waterloo, Iowa, <laughs> and then somewhere else at night it would skip in. Yeah. But here was uh, KRBI, I think was my first station. Anyway, this guy came to the Brown Institute. I'll get back to KRBI. Came in and he says, "I need an announcer down there, a combo man." No, he didn't because they were only a daytimer. Gotcha. Okay, if if. If you can't get a, if you don't want to bother putting out all this directional equipment and stuff at night, you can broadcast during the day. But each month, your time varies. At six o'clock, boom, you're shutting the station off. I can't broadcast anymore because I'm going to bother somebody somewhere. Right. So you're a daytime. Right. And this was a daytime. So they the now the school I didn't unbeknownst to me played them some tapes of different announcers. Mm -hmm. And the guy listened and he liked what I did. There you go. So he hired me, right? You know, I was still in school. Oh, so that. I had my first job before I got out of school. That's awesome. But I wanted, I was so excited, like you learned a business. I was driving for, I said, well, should I finish school? Yeah, finish your school first. So on the weekends, I would drive the 80 or 100 miles down to St. Peter mm -hmm. and pull a ship for nothing. Yeah. Because I wanted to learn it. Yeah. I wanted to learn the business. Yeah. Of course, the guys I'm in class with, they could hear our station in Minneapolis. Boy, they're all listening to hear bombs get down the, you know. <laughs> so that's how hard I worked at it. Plus, I'm working at a factory then while I'm going to radio school and weekends driving down there for yeah. nothing. Wore myself ragged. Oh, yeah. But anyway, went to work at St. Peter in uh, the spring of 1959. And it was a country station, like back to my country station. It was one in Minneapolis and one at St. Peter. Yeah. Well, somebody, they would do a Grand Ole Opry show at once a month in Minneapolis. Yeah. Ray Price, people like that would be there. I used to go there when I was in high school, listen. Mm -hmm. So when these people come in and do a, a Grand Ole Opry, they like to go on radio, you know, talk yeah. about their records and stuff. So they only had two options. They had the one there in Minneapolis, um, one of the announcers I used to listen to was, uh, oh, he did six days on the road and we're going to make it home tonight. Do yeah. You remember that song? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, he was a morning man at a station in Minneapolis. Oh, who my wrote gosh. That. I say his name. But anyway, so after I got in the business, I had a chance to meet this guy who I used to listen oh, to. That's cool. So they would come into I the station, they would come into the station in Minneapolis and then they would drive down there. I, I sat with, down with, uh, George Jones. Wow. Yeah. When he came out with White Lightning. You yeah. Know, that. And I had, uh, trying to think of some other ones. Gonna find me a Bluebird, uh, Marvin Rainwater. I don't know yeah. if you, you go back yeah. to that. Yeah. Place. Did Loretta Lynn ever make it in there? Loretta Lynn? No. She came down there and did a show, though, and I didn't get a chance to interview her. Did you ever see Coal Miner's Daughter? 
Yes. Removing. Oh, yeah. Did you see where they, where they yes. toured? That wasn't far from where you were on the radio. No. That area right there? Um, they must have just missed you, missed your station, because they went to a whole bunch of. Oh, I know, but they were they were more in the south. They yeah. weren't up in Minnesota. Well, they were down in they were down in Tennessee. Tennessee, yeah, uh, Kentucky yeah. area, that kind oh, of yeah, thing. We, but they were, but they they came up into was it Ohio. I don't think it was. I don't think they got as north as far as north as Ohio. They didn't quite get to Minnesota, I don't think. But they got they got close in that. You know, when you look at that map of where they were going, yes, um, they got close. I mean, yeah. they, you know, that yeah, that, we that was have, long. That we was would right have, about that time. We would have some people stop in. Well, we were you know a smaller market, but um, but it was so. Here, I was a kid, still twenty. I was just twenty years old, and I would have these. So I had to learn because I don't remember Brown Institute training as much in interviewing. Yeah, I look back, it was all more on eloquence and speech right. and. That type of thing. In fact, they used to advertise radio and TV school. And I asked one of the instructors one day, I said, what's this TV stuff? Right. He yeah. says, well, didn't we teach you, don't pick your nose if you're on television? He says, that's enough. I says, well, maybe. There's your, there's maybe, your formal yeah, training. I said, yeah, I forgot that you had that. <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, I want to go back a little bit. I had a lot of fun. With, well, like I said, I'm in radio school. I met another guy, his name was Dave Nixon. And Dave was down from that Nebraska area, <laughs> and he was that character and a half. He and I had more fun. We had an instructor one day. He says, you know what, someday, if I ever own a radio station, this is Norris and Nixon, you're coming to work for him. Oh, I love he it. says, we probably won't make any money, but we're going to have a lot of fun. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. that was a nice compliment. Yeah. And and Dave, here I'm getting off subject, but Dave went back and, and then was able to work at the 50,000-watt station in Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, my gosh. He was that good. That's where my son went to college. And he, I used to bring him with me down to St. Peter on the weekends, and both Dave and I would do a thing to us. You know, here we are just kids in, in radio school. What yeah. fun that was. Later on, he got a job at a station in Minneapolis. Wow. And I'm back there uh, on vacation. I know he's working. It's been a few years since I've seen Dave. Mm -hmm. But somebody told me how I knew he was working at this station. And he was doing a talk thing at night. And I was trying to find his station. It was over close to St. Paul. I don't know if you've ever been in the Twin Cities. It's so hard to find your way around over there. We couldn't find where the studios were. There was even a cop we stopped and asked. He says, I don't know, it's somewhere over there. Wow. Well, I couldn't get, I couldn't get through, so we stopped at a phone booth. I had a couple of my buddies from Minnesota I'm with. We stopped at a phone booth because I had the number of the station, mm -hmm. and he's doing a night talk thing, but the only way I can get to him is go on his talk show. He's to call in. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's what I did. Oh, my God. I called in, and, and I says, he says, whatever, KBWB, I think, Minneapolis, yeah. whatever it is, and I called in and I said, Dave, yeah, this is, this is Bob North. Well, Bob North, and here we are, and they get, my buddy just sitting out in the car, they're going, Nin. <laughs> so he talk on the air for a minute, and then he quickly goes to a commercial and says, where are you, and right. tell me how to get there, so right. we went and then had breakfast, but what a fun time, but here oh, I am, I got to go on his life, so right now, right. where are you, I don't right. know why I think of that, but, well, that's, that's, a, that's a neat memory. So, yes. Yeah. So, after, by the way, after I'm at that station, then I, I, uh, 
Then they switch. They take away the country format, this new owner. Mm -hmm. To me, a lot of people listen to the station, but you couldn't get advertisers to admit that they would listen to your station. It was, that was a tough thing to overcome back in the 50s. Okay. So you had just you had just gone to work at, at, that, at that station, yes. and they changed the they format changed. from country because you said, when we, were, when we were last on, you said the advertisers wouldn't admit they were listening to country. I... And plus, they, it was a very small station. It was like a, somebody's house you were in. Wow. And St. Peter's a much bigger market than that. Because the trouble is, when you're around a big city like that, mm -hmm. if I learned later in life, you better you better talk about what's going on in your area. I wish, I would, as I look back, I wish I wouldn't have been so green at what I was doing. Yeah. I just said, let's get involved with the community. We didn't even do local city commission reports or any we didn't talk about st peter we mm -hmm. just played music well right. you're sitting against the big minneapolis market mm -hmm. and you want to try to sound like them but yeah. you're not talking i mean and i they i knew owners later i don't think the guy ever made it and why he would come out of an engineering background and decide he wanted to run a radio station <laughs> that doesn't work you better have people that know how to sell yeah, how to program and then hire your engineers, who am I to take? But anyway, no, I, agree that. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, while I was at Brown, mm -hmm. I, I met a guy out of Montana. Okay. We weren't in the same class, but we would meet in between, and we kind of, it's like you and me, we had just something that was yeah. connected. Yeah. We had a lot of fun. So, this guy's name is Jim. He goes back out to Shelby, Montana, where he's from. <laughs> Shelby's clear up there by the Canadian border up on I-15, which starts kind of here in San Diego mm -hmm. and ends up 25 miles north of where I was at the Canadian border. Gotcha. So now I'm on one end of the I-15 to the other end. He goes back out to Shelby, but he doesn't have a first-class ticket. He can be his regular staff announcer, but mm -hmm. they needed a combo man. Okay. And this Dolbeck tells the manager there, he says, you know, I met a guy back in Minnesota. I'll bet he'd go to work out here. So I'm sitting there. I'd only been at KRBI for, see, I started like in April. This was like about May, probably about June. Wow, so you were been there a couple of months. Yeah, okay, they switched format. Yeah, they went They went to a top 40 thing. Okay, okay, okay let's go back to that and then I'll go back to what happened. Okay. They go, now they want to sound like Minneapolis. Yes. In the 50s, you got the top 30 you'd play and you turn them over and play them over. Right. And folks in radio, let me, or let me tell you a little background. Uh, the old days of playing the records, the 45s and the LPs, all we had was turntables. We didn't know what tape was. They didn't have it then. And so, yeah, they had tape, but I mean, as far as uh, playing the music, you didn't have any of your things you have nowadays. It was all vinyl? Yes. Oh, oh yeah, all vinyl. But and you, you call what you call, you cue them up. You, you have your regular turntable, your silos, and on, on your console, you have controls that you drop down into what they call a cue position. As you turn it down, a cue means it comes into a speaker here in your studio. So you cue it up. When I talk about a cue, and you got it right to the note. So when you hear the song, and say, hey, number one this week is boom. And I, turn, and I, 
I, I got that turn cable going and the record's right there. Yeah, so you have so, it all set up, ready to go. Yeah, well, you, you have to, to so otherwise you hear Yeah. So yeah. you want it tight, yeah. you want it to move. Sure. But the trouble is, by the time you cue up this record every time, you always get a little bit of scratch burn on it. It's yeah. called, and, and, it, and you, so, but when you're cueing, I'll tell you what, we've played so many songs Dave Baby Cortez was doing Happy Organ then. Uh, I don't know if you remember that song. Uh, in my mind now, but back in 59, this would be. I'd be outside because I had to be on duty. Yeah, they needed an engineer there. Yeah, where it was for some reason. But anyway, I'd be outside uh, watering them on or doing something because I had to be there at the station while another announcer was on. Well, they cue up a record. I can tell you what that song was. <laughs> I had to cue them so many times. You just do me a couple notes on one, and I knew what the yeah. song was. Oh, wow. But anyway, and then, so they changed me. <clears throat> when you first get into radio, you don't really know who you are. Yeah. You, you're probably imitating someone you've heard or yeah. whatever. You don't have the confidence. Or emulating, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's... You, yeah, you don't have any confidence in in yourself yet that much. You, I've you, literally never done that. No, I've literally never done that. I've never, yeah. I've never tried to be somebody. No, you didn't have to because, but well, it just, I just never, it just never, it just was never my thing. I, you know, I, I'm a huge Rush Limbaugh fan, right? But I never tried to be like Rush Limbaugh. I always no. just tried to be me. Yes. You know what I mean? But and you, just, but you had a you know, a thing you want to talk about, real estate or oh, whatever you did. See, yeah. see here I am, no, I got to play music, I got to do the news, I got to yeah. cut commercials, I've got, you still got a lot of wide different things you have to do, but as far, and a lot of, some of your people never really do develop much personality on the air. It's all, you know, they're all pretty automated. Hey, 20 minutes past the hour, it's 48 degrees out there, now number three, just wait, boom, you know, I mean, that yeah. type of announcing. Instead of that, so I was raised on listening to WCCO Minneapolis. They they were uh, they were they were guys that would sit and talk, and, and, and nobody hollering at me. I did even at that young age. I didn't care. WDGY out of Minneapolis was one of your first ones that came up with uh, you know all that type of fast formats. Mm -hmm. WDGY number one, and you know here we are, and that that type of emotion, and that's hard work. Well. These, this engineer that bought it, they're out of Minneapolis, and he's got a guy that had been an announcer in Minneapolis as the manager. Gotcha. Well, bless his heart, he knew how to announce, but he didn't know how to manage. He had no <laughs> idea how to. I mean, it was a mess. He was an announcer, but it was a mess. <laughs> so they switched it over, and now here's what they want. KBI, they wanted this, and I had a holler every time they wanted, as you'd come out of a record, it would be KBI temperature now, 74 degrees, KBI time to send past the hour, Bob and Bob with the big blue eyes right here on KBI, boom. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about flat wearing out, try to work a full shift doing that every yeah, time. Worry out. Yeah, they wanted that kind of energy every time you come out, and you heard stations like that. Wow. That wasn't me. Yeah. That's not you. <laughs> so I get a call. I bet you. <laughs> okay. Now, I get a call from a guy. says, hi. He says, my name is Jerry Black. I'm in Shelby, Montana, you know, and you know, of course, you know Jim. Yeah. He says, well, I need an announcer out here. 
Normally, you know, the guy listens to you or send a tape. He hired me. I mean, he heard me on the air. He just <laughs> so but because of Jim, he hired. Me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Eleven hundred miles from there to Shelby, Montana, where I was at really? Minnesota. Wow. I've been to Montana one time at Yellowstone as a kid. That's yeah. all I knew about Montana. So, and I, I'm going back home on the weekend. We're ski, water skiing up down the Mississippi or the beautiful sand beach, Minnesota lakes, and you know my own buddies and got a girlfriend and that kind of stuff. And offered me a job. At that time in 1959, he was offering me 400 a month. Well, I started at KRBI at 275 a month. You know? wow. I then got raised up to like three and a half, but for a hundred bucks a week then wasn't too bad of money. Because you know, gas was like two bits and yeah. whatever. I mean, your car, I bought a nice 55 Chevy. Mm -hmm. I think I paid $1,800 for that. So it was a relative thing. And, uh, me, I, I said, yeah, well, let me think about that. Okay. Well, I didn't, I don't know, I kicked it around with my mind, and then I didn't, I didn't think much more about it. I get another phone call. Jerry Black out in Montana. Are you, do you want to go to work out here? I said, oh, yeah. I said, yeah, let me think about it again. So about a week later, I get a call. And, of course, in the, at that time, these top 40 records are 30. They're only about two and a half minutes long. Mm -hmm. You learn that if you got to do a potty break and you got two and a half minutes, you learn to get things done in a hurry. Fire. So the records, because you're off the air, you know, exactly. boom. Exactly. So anyway, the reason I say that because I get a call from Jerry. He says, "Say, he says I got to know if I, if you're not coming, I got to hire somebody." I said, "Just a minute." I got a record playing. I lay the phone down. The manager is sitting on his in an in office over there doing nothing. I said, I got a guy on the phone from Montana who's paying me 400 a month. Can you guys match it? You know, mm -hmm. I, they said, get match it. No, Bob, we just, you know, and they're pretty small money. I said, I got to give you two weeks notice. Okay, I'll see you in two weeks. Oh, great. No, I record quiz. I ever, do a lot of planning to take a job uh, like 1,100 miles away. Uh, <laughs> had you ever been to Shelby, Montana? No. So I you had no idea where it was. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. That is crazy. So it always I It's a cool story though. I, I, I laughed later in life when I had hired an house that have to come out, check the town over right. there. I said, yeah, that's the way I did too. I said, oh sure. I yeah. was very careful about it. August 15th, I took out a cross and it's hot across, I don't know if you've been up in that country, across North Dakota. Mm -hmm. In eastern Montana, which is about 400 miles mm -hmm. where I got the Shelby, yeah. Montana's a big state. It really is. So here I am bouncing along in this hot weather in the middle of August. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I pulled into this little dust blown town of Shelby. Yeah. 400 miles, 400 miles, 400 miles. It was big, it, yeah, it was oil country and cattle and wheat, big wheat farmers. Really? And uh, so I pulled in there and went and had something to eat and found the radio station and some guy's working and Skid, Skid Bedoin was the guy that was on the air at the time and I told him I'm the guy from Minnesota. Oh yeah. So he went and got the manager and he's getting a long tour and everything. So they didn't have a format of any kind at KSCN. Really? It was 
I'd say, what, are, what is our format here? Well, their music, they would play a little of everything, you know, I mean, okay. whatever you wanted to kind of pick out. I mean, it was, they didn't really have a program director that was. So did, it, did people call in and make requests or was it just, no. you just kind of played whatever you felt like playing? Yeah. Wow. Well, but one thing with that station, it covered about a five county area and uh, it covered, this is where I really learned, I think, radio, how to serve people. Yeah. We, see at that time, you were that rancher that lived uh, 40 miles from you up near the Canadian border. You were his daily newspaper. He didn't have a paper delivered to him. Yeah. You didn't have any social media. Point. You were his time and temp man. No, you you no, weather his depended a lot because mm -hmm. he needed to know if we got a storm coming with his cat or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So you became a, a very important commodity to those people, and they relied on you. So cattle prices, wheat prices, mm -hmm. Mont Northern Montana is a lot of what they call dry land farming, where they don't. I mean, a lot of places they can irrigate too. You have to get dry land farming to get high protein in wheat, which is for your, when you're baking, like Pillsbury out of Minneapolis, they want wheat with a high protein level because they pay these farmers extra money. Mm -hmm. And that's called the protein level, so we give that every day. Yeah. That farmer wanted to know when to sell his crop. Yep. You see, so you, you had to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And you were a real resource for them. We were. Yeah. We, we tried to be everybody's station. Yeah. And the best way, the station was quite small when it went out there. There was just a thousand watt. We ended up 10,000 watt later on in life, plus an FM. That's another story we won't get into. <laughs> so anyway, but I was pretty new at it and liked fun. And it was a party town, yeah. I'll tell you that, Shelby, Woofka. And uh, that's where a lot of custom combiners would end up the season. Yep. You know, and they party time for them, so it was, it was a fun time. There, there was a local club down there called the Alibi Club. In fact, where my sister met her husband, <laughs> they're still together. Met him there in Shelby. But anyway, they would have uh, comedians and other type of acts that come right out of Vegas, and they'd be right there at the little Shelby, Montana. My goodness. Yeah, so it was amazing. There was a lot of gambling went on, and there was uh, local uh, houses that were, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> back in that era. Overviewed. So yeah, so it had this Shelby. So anyway, so it was a fun town that way. Well, when I got out there, though, you know, it took a lot of adjusting. Man, uh, the guy says, you want to go water skiing? You know, they took me down to a little kind of a puddle hole with mud and crap. I gee, what is it? Yeah. But you know, not, not the land of 10,000 lakes for sure. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, a little bit of adjustment, I guess. But you know, the one thing, I, after they've been there a few months, I, I learned to love it. You could sit down and have a local, have a beer or something. He might be sitting alongside of it. It'd be a big old cowboy there with a big old beat up hat or something on. And Montanans are known for friendliness and whatever and you could sit and talk with that guy and somebody they'd leave and somebody said you know who you were talking to no that guy owns most of the county you know i mean they would have these some of these guys would be big farmers and ranchers that had money but there was no class system whatsoever they if you were people you were my friend it didn't matter you couldn't ever tell 
I like that. Not yeah. that Minnesota, but it, you still get that thing. I have this and have that. I didn't see that too much there. So I fell in love with the people. Then I fell in love with the country because I was raised on a farm and I kind of missed that. And a good friend to this day, he just turned 90 years old last week, had a 30,000 acre Angus ranch up near the Canadian border, what they call the Sweetgrass Hills in Montana. Well, you were up in Montana, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about. Steve and I got to be friends and, and uh, I would go up there and help him on the ranch. And uh, here I come from a little 120 acre farm in Minnesota. Yeah. And one day when I first went up there, he says, jump in one of those Jeeps and follow those guys. I want him to go to the other end of this field, round up those cattle down there and bring them down to this corral. Just follow along and you'll kind of see what to do. He says, that field up there, I drove and drove and drove. We got back and brought the cattle back. I said, how big is that field? He said, I think there's about 8,000 acres in that one. <laughs> and he wasn't trying to be, he huh? called it a field. Yeah. You know? And that was just normal for him. That was, <laughs> right? And you're sitting there going, 8,000 acres? Geez. And he had 30,000 acres. Wow. Beautiful country. So I learned to do that. I go out and help brand. And, but it was good for me to go do that. So oh, sure. if I'm talking, I tell you what, you're talking to about farming or you're talking about ranching, you better know that you're talking about because they kind of look at you like you're a you're a drugstore cowboy. Right. Yeah. You're all hat but no, no cattle. cattle. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it was good for me to go do that. And I wanted to learn you know, there was big massive combines and stuff, and I'd go out and ride with guys and talk. So I wanted to flow in when I'm talking to them, and it helped me. Yeah. And uh, so it, we did a lot of things. Sports, we covered eight high schools in their sports. Wow. We learned, although we were in a small town of about mm -hmm. 5,000, but you're serving a lot of small towns about that size. Yeah. The best way to come in, we didn't just want to be the Shelby station. I hated to ever hear say, oh yeah, we listen to Shelby. No, we listen to KSEN. Right. I'm your station, we come in, I want to be your station. Yeah. So the best way to do that for our sales staff is we're going to do their ball games. Because mm -hmm. in the wintertime, your farmers and ranchers, they look kind of lax. They, we had a gymnasium in that little town of Shelby that held 5,000 people. Wow. It came in in a section up above even. We, we as a radio station brought in the Globetrotters twice. We bring it, we, that's the kind of promotions we get into. I remember Globetrotters coming into that Shelby gym years ago. And they come, of course, they travel the world. Yeah. And they stand here, the <coughs> guy says, man, he says, where did you get a gymnasium like this? He says, you know, he goes, so we learned to do play by play. We did live and delayed games even, yeah. but we would have to travel now they have other stations that cover those towns. One town we covered, a town of Malta, Montana, was 190 miles from us. Wow. I would do my air shift and do some production. If I had, if I was assigned to do that game in Malta, I would throw my broadcast equipment in the car, drive 190 miles, do a ball game, come back, come back, sign the station on the next morning. I mean, yeah, welcome to showbiz. <laughs> it's like the guy, taking care of the elephants in the circus, yeah. right? Give up showbiz, you know? Right, exactly. So it was work, we worked hard at it, but we became a pretty big station. And while I'm thinking about that, I had left this station too and I came back, that's other stories. But in 1964, 
still remember to this day. Uh, that spring, we were probably 70 miles from the mountains, the Rockies, where the Rockies meet the plains, it's called. But anyway, there were some dams, earth-filled dams, but they had 11 inches of rain on top of a heavy snowpack mm. in June, June 8th, 1964. Uh, that dam let go up there, it's called Swift Dam. And when it did, it brought a 50-foot wall of water down and it would hit ranches. I had uh, I had a friend of mine, I, I later on became a pilot. I always wanted to fly. Yeah. We won't get into that, but I had an airplane and my partner, when he knew there was one out, he got up and, and flew over that and was able to mm. radio back to us some. But anyway, <clears throat> that wall of water would hit and, and we, we tried to get the word out right now, you know, evacuate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the places where it happened was on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation there on Montana, mm -hmm. big reservation. I had some Indians later say, Norris, why didn't you tell us to get our butts out of there? I don't know what evacuate is. Mm -hmm. So I learned something, you know, the Indian, he doesn't always know a word like evacuate. Yeah. And so, not that a lot of them didn't, but I remember very well. Why didn't you tell us to get out? Yeah. But we were on the air, because we were the only source of communication. Yeah. We had just bought what you call Marty units, or little transmitters to go out and do a ball game. And we would shoot back off the mountain and get a signal so we could do ball games a long ways away with just this transmitter and an antenna. We'd go set up in the gym, set up the antenna, flip the transmitter on, bam, we're on the air. Wow. But that really helped us in that flood. We had the guy fly guys into the flooded area. No roads, no bridges, everything was washed out. And we were five days on the air straight, just communicating, no commercials. FCC let us go with full power at night. We got permission. Wow. We were handling, you know, people calling and so-and-so is missing. Has anybody seen this? We need some emergency supplies here. Guys that are flying, were flying in and getting people out. They were listening to us to direct where they needed to go. We, uh, about, you take a little break and we'd come back and I'd have a whole box full of messages or something. You just start in. And it, the, the, the National Guard flew in then and saw what we were doing. We said, well, who's supposed to take care of this? Well, there is civil defense people, but they didn't have them. I said, normally it's the strongest thing that's going on like you guys at the center of it all. Yeah. So we handle all that. And that really put us on the map as a radio station. Oh, sure. It, it, we look back at it. In fact, that little station up there in Shelby, Montana <clears throat> received, not that we did a thing to get awards, but one of our people put together a, a collection of some of the reporting that we did mm -hmm. and sent it in and we got what they call the Sigma, uh, Sigma Chi Delta, Sigma Delta Chi Award. It was a, it's a national award for uh, they give out two awards each year. CBS got one, we get the other one. Wow. Can you imagine nationally, <laughs> little old KSCN had that plaque still sits there at that wall. I go back to this day, I got out, I left, retired in 
22 years ago. I still got some staff members that I hired there. When I go back to Shelby, I go, I go on the air with them. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And there's, there's, there's one commercial I cut for them later on a few years ago. I still have people that say, Bob, we listen to you. We hear your commercial on there. But that's the thing with radio. People, I've met so many wonderful people over the years. And I, I made a job of some of the fun things I don't know if we get into. One that I'm thinking of at the moment, you talk about being close to your people. We had, a, years ago, there was a comedy team out of LA called Hudson and Landry. Mm -hmm. And they did some crazy funny things. They would do it in front of a live audience too and take this. Well, they did a thing on a couple of old timers out and they had a, a, a you'd hear a rattlesnake rattle and say, they say, what's that? He says, that's old Floyd. They called the rattlesnake old Floyd. Mm -hmm. Well, did you feed him today? No, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it was always, and it was a fun routine. It was perfect because we're in rattlesnake country there in Montana. Yeah, good. So I used to play that quite a bit. Well, there was a, we had a, a big farmer out there. His name is Carl Westmore. Carl, he had no problem with the, He'd see a big old rattler on the road. He'd stop and grab it right by the back of the neck and put it in. He'd take it over to the high school. The kids could dissect him, you know what I'm saying? Wow. So anyway, I'm sitting down there in the studio. It was under a bank. Yeah. A small little place. Yeah, under a bank. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the air. I come on for the evening shift. Well, our doors were always open. Who cared? In fact, the door. So I'm sitting there and I'm doing the news. And... Uh, I look up and here's, I see Carl comes in. And I'm the only one in the station. So he comes in, and I just keep reading my news. Comes in, he's got a jar about that big around, a glass jar. He sets it down right alongside of me while I'm reading the news. And I look and there's a big rattler in there. And I hate snakes. Is alive? Here I got, no, he had him in the jar. And he, I shut the mic off quick and he says, that's old Floyd. <laughs> People had, you know, we had wow. fun with them. Why would you think of that? I'll get that, and take it in, give it to Norris. Yeah, know? but so, wow. so me and old Floyd sat there and I finished the news. Oh, isn't that crazy. fun? That people do. Let me. Another thing, it just hits me. We, I call it small town radio. When you're doing small market, it's so much different. You have to serve everybody with everything. We did birthday announcements. We did birthdays and anniversary for today. We did a baby report from the local hospitals. We had fire departments back before you had cell phones or anything, they're all volunteer. We had a siren for fire sirens so that when little towns around us, like a town like Conrad, Cutbank, and Shelby, the sheriff's office in those different counties, when there was a fire, they would call quick, we've got a fire, boom. So we could tell their volunteer firemen out on their jobs. There's a fire going on right now. And so we were the main source for that fireman to get to that fire hall and go, now, if that doesn't make you feel good that you're a part of the oh, community, sure. they needed you. Yeah. We tried to have fun with them, but they needed us. Yeah. And so it was fun. People responded to you, you know, whatever you need or wherever you go. And we, were, we would report on everything. We would have different news reporters in each town do a little five-minute news thing. Uh, 
We would do sheriff's reports each day. They're still doing that up there. Yeah. Call the sheriff department, like in four or five different counties, they learned to do a little, well, here's what happened last night. Yeah, there were two but, DUIs. Yeah, were, yeah we right. were their daily newspaper. That's cool. Well, and people relied on us for all the darnison. Let me tell you a quick example of that. The town west of us called Cutbank, Montana, then to the west of them is Browning. It's on the Indian Reservation. A guy that lived in Cutbank but worked in Browning at a lumber yard, uh, he had fallen and busted, busted up an anchor or something, so he had crutches. Well, he had his crutch in the back of his pickup. Apparently, just one crutch. Of all things, you get. Well, he's on his way to work through Browning, and he gets to work, no crutch. Now, who would think of my crutch flew out of my pickup? Who would you think, would you call your local radio station to help find your crutch? Well, they called us. <laughs> wow. I'm on the air, my, our gals bring it in, say, and, and I'd have fun with people, i say, well, we got something going on here, folks. I says, I need your help. Dick so-and-so over there in Cutbank this morning, he's on his way to work to Browning at Browning Lumber. He got a crutch in the back, apparently it blew out on the highway, so anybody driving down Highway 2, if you see the crutch, call or it is in five minutes, the guy calls us from Browning. Not only did somebody find it on the road, they took it to him where he worked. Oh. They were from Calgary, Alberta, 200 miles north of us. They were driving down the road listening to us when I brought it on. Yeah. They looked down the road and here lays this guy's crutch and takes it to him. That's perfect. <laughs> that's, that's small town, small market radio. And again and again, you would find things like that. But well, it's like, it's so like we was, said, you, you were a resource. Yes. You were really the center of what was happening there. Yes. Right? In in more ways than than most radio stations ever dream of being. Yes. So that's I mean that's but you know, it is and it's partly because you're in Shelby, right? You're out in the middle of all like you said, all these small oh, towns yeah. and this, you know, vast area, right? I mean one guy has a thirty thousand acre Angus ranch, right? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I mean it's yeah, I mean I that just had to have been the most famous. You know, I you know this because we shared the, the story with you, but we went to Whitefish um, a couple of years ago and, yes. and visited Phil, and he took us to the resort. We're sitting by the by the pool, and we get to talking, and the people that are sitting next to us, he grew up in Shelby. Yes, his name was across Ross, the street from right? us. Yeah, literally, right. <laughs> and they were fan, they were huge fans of yours. He was his family, huge fans of yours growing up. And they were telling us all about, you know, how amazing it was growing up listening to you and all that. I mean, it's, you're really, I mean, I know, I know you're too humble to refer to yourself as a legend, but you're really a legend in radio in Montana and you have a massive following. It's just, you know, I know you don't run into those people all the time, but we do from time to time, you know, and it's really cool. It's really, I mean, it was fun to listen. He turned into a little kid. Uh, yeah. He's a grown man, right? Yeah. And he turned into a little kid telling us yes. about growing up listening to you. Well, talk about uh, younger people coming back and remembering things. When I came out to that station, they we would do a morning swap program. Okay. This is, of course, you didn't again have social media. You didn't have any way of communicating. Right. People would send in stuff to us and we would do a 15 minute show mm -hmm. with a local hardware store there. At the time when I started, K&T Hardware Swap. So you'd have 
you know, you'd maybe have a note, I got three cows I want to sell, or I got a, I, I need a pickup, or I don't, everything. So we put it on there. And then on Fridays, I change it where we let people call in with their swapping. And that was fun talking and sure. having fun with people, you know, but that type of thing. But uh, why did I bring that up anyway? Well, you know, you know that doing what you did for 42 years had a special place in people's hearts. Yes. You talked about anniversaries, you celebrated birthdays, you, you were a resource when there was a flood, you know, when they, when people had yes. something they needed to move, yeah. you were a resource. Yeah, every that's time, right. Every time you turned and, around, and you were their ball games, you know, yeah. did so many, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of games we did over the years. Well, there was seven of us that did play-by-play -play in that little market we had. You don't realize how you become part of people's family if you talk with them. Mm -hmm. And I was a, I didn't always do mornings, but later on in life, when I became part owner, but I, then I was for 26 years, the, the morning thing. In 1973, before I didn't own any part of KSCN at that time, I had an offer to uh, go out to Northern Idaho up in the silver mining country mm -hmm. from a guy that used to work for us. He and another guy had bought a radio station and offered me part ownership to come and program their station. Mm -hmm hire the announcers, do what I wanted with it. So it was a nice opportunity, something different. So <clears throat> I announced that I was leaving KSEM. One of our, one of our advertisers owned a, a small clothing type store in a, a Conrad, Montana, where my wife is from. And uh, I got a letter from them. Joe Robbins was his name, he had Robbins and Gust. Still remember this. He says, Bob, we have listened to you for years. We've grown up listening to you at the breakfast table with talking about your family and, and whatever. And he said, this morning, when you mentioned that you were leaving, my wife started crying. Mm -hmm. And he says, you become so much of our life. Mm -hmm. And that really hit me, it's like, whoa, Lord. Yeah. Well, well you, you don't realize you become so much part of their daily routine. Every day, you know. You're there every day. I wanted to get back to my swap program. I'll tell you what. I like your because swap. they had a tradition for years of playing a polka in the swap program. Yeah. That wasn't really part of their music. The only time you could hear a polka. Now, I grew southern Minnesota where I started. They had stations that played polkas 24 hours. Sure they did. Yeah. And today, there's still a lot of that. Okay, what be John and all these guys, yeah. But anyway, so that was a tradition. You always had to play a polka. Yeah. Well, we played it at, at about 10 minutes to eight. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would wait for their school buses. They'd be out and have the radio on or at home. And they'd hear that polka come on. Yeah. And later on in life, kids would come back from college and say, Bob, you know what? We got down to college here there. We missed our polka. <laughs> <laughs> that became, that's like this rock twins yeah. that you're talking to. You see, yeah. those kids grew up with that kind of stuff. Yeah. It always made me feel good. Yeah. We missed the polka. Yeah. And uh, so. Well, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's hard to put into words what an important part of their lives you were. Yes. Right? And, and, and talking to rock, 
you got that feel. You you it wasn't so much what he said, it was how he said it. Yeah. Right? He just turned into a little kid from Shelby, Montana that, that was a huge, huge, huge Bob Norris fan. Yeah. And it, and you just you just you become part of their family. Yes. You know, you're part of their daily routine and, yeah. and it's just it's um that was a cool, cool time to be on the radio and be a huge resource for the people in that area. Forty two years, that's that's something to be proud of, Bob. Can can I tell you a few stupid things oh, that of course. I did? Tell me anything you want. I don't know what I think about it. I know we didn't have any type of format we're gonna do here. Okay. It's all about you. Back in uh, about 19, or early 60s, I'd only been at KSCM maybe a year and a half. My brother-in-law, my future brother-in-law, no, it was my brother-in-law then, and his brother were at Helena, Montana, that was, of course, the capital of Montana. Yeah. And my brother-in-law was a chief engineer at the TV station, and his brother was program director. Okay. Well, Jerry, the manager who I became partners with later on in life, he and I were having a few movies over a few things and whatever. And I don't know, it was just at a time where I just, at unrest, I needed needed a change. Yeah. So I went to work in uh, Helen, and I got down there, and this is 1961 or whatever. Working the radio side of a radio TV combination in a big Quonset building plus the United Press International. We were all in the same building there in Helena. Okay. Well, I got to, once in a while I'd wander over on the TV side, kind of watch what they're doing. I, you know, look in the control room and wander around. I got to know them. In fact, my first TV thing was sitting here doing this. I, I was, when you asked me to do this, I got to thinking back, what am I going to talk about with Mike? And right. I, so I made a few notes of this, but this one was fun to me. I just sat to think about it this morning before we got on. I uh, I had wandered into the big studio. Everything back then, we didn't have tape, videotape. If you did a commercial, it was either on film or you did it live, wow. or we did it with what's called slides. So I had a slide projector. I ended up working in the TV end of it later on. When you're doing a commercial, they bring you a commercial to leave to read live, and on the side of the commercial, they would have what slide you bring up. And up here, you'd have the alphabet. So if the slide was B3, you had to do your own. I had to reach up and push B3, and then read while I'm reading the commercial, then I'd see it was slide C4. So I'd go C4 while I'm trying to be fluent. You talk about archaic. No, that was early black and white television, one camera. Wow. And multitasking all at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When, when, well, anyway, of course, I'd work in radio. Well, I went back then, that's when I went back to Minneapolis and visited this Dave Nixon. Yeah. And in the meantime, I had a friend of mine that had worked with the, at, a, at the country station, had come into Minneapolis, and they, they put on a country station, and that's how much change, things yeah. change in a few years. Gotcha. So I went over and visited this guy, Ralph Beeble was his name, and he said, hey, he says, you want to go to work? <laughs> Here's Minneapolis, you're waiting to get into a big market. And, and I, he takes me to the manager's office, says, this is Mom, blah, blah, blah. he's been here, he's doing a great job. Bob Morris, so, Bob Norris from the old Norris and Nixon yeah, show, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and this Dave who talked, uh, you know, Nixon, he says, I'll tell you, that country station is going to go places. You know, mm -hmm. he knew it. 
So I could have been. They were offering, I was making more money out there in little old Montana than what they offered me. Pretty early. Yeah, and I couldn't. I said, I'm sorry, I'm making more money than that where I am, you know. So some things never change, right? Yeah. You, when you were in St. Peter, yeah. you made less money than you than you made in That's Shelby. That's right, yeah. And you told them, can you match it? And they said no, and yeah. you went to yeah. Shelby, right? Same way here. You still made more money, yeah, same right? Way here. Yeah. So anyway, in the meantime, back in Helena. Some things never change. No, <laughs> So my brother-in-law's brother, <laughs> Bob, who also his name, he kind of heard that I was looking back there, and he wanted me to come over on the television side. Really? So he called me back in Minnesota. He said, Bob, he says, when you come back, I, I, I want you to work in television with us. Really? So I said, Is that in Helena? Pardon? Is that in Helena? Yes. Okay. So I said, yeah, well, yeah, I could do that. So I get back. Now, in small town, was in America again, uh, the TV studio, the engineering part of it, you had you had a console that was, a console is where all your controls are for people by home. Yeah. And, 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 and on that we had you know you, and you had a little monitor that was what your cameraman's looking at. Mm -hmm. Later on, we got more cameras, but anyway, so you had to control, and plus, you did, you had a thing called, uh, well, it was a couple of adjustments you had to make. Back in the old days of television, I don't know if you remember once in a while, they'd get on a, if the camera would swing on something that had a lot of light, your whole TV set would buzz. You yeah. remember those Yeah, days? I do, yeah, that was a long okay. time ago. You, you had I was a, little, but I remember. Yeah, yeah. that it would do that. <clears throat> Nowadays, they have automatic, you know, game controls that take care we, of that. We had three channels, right? Yeah, three channels. We had three channels. We had ABC, CBS, and NBC. Yeah, that was right. That's what we had. That's all, yeah, that's all we had. And we were lucky if we had those. You bet. Right? And yeah. by the way, just so we're clear, yes. I, I didn't mention this a minute ago, but I'm going to mention it now. I saw the Harlem Globetrotters for the very first time in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Oh, did you? Yeah. In yes. their, in their, and they were on their way going up the remember they, were, they were headed to you. Remember Goose Tatum? Yeah. Goose was a... You remember like, Curly Neal? Curly Neal. Curly Neal was, was there. there. Yes. Yeah, Curly Neal was I there. I know it. Yeah. I mean, just, and, and um, Meadowlark Lemon was Metal there. Meadowlark, yeah. Yep. He was I mean, he was, he, I got to see all those guys. Oh, my dad, yeah. my yes. dad took us to to the Harlem Goldtriers in Blackwell, Oklahoma, oh, yeah. which was a big deal back then. Well, you know? I mean, that's not, I mean, that's a tiny town that's, I mean, it's bigger than 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 Shelby is, but yeah. it's a but it's a tiny town. and. That was a big, big deal that the Harlem Globetrotters oh, came yeah. to Blackwell, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was, and those custom cutters that came up to see you, they went right through our place. Oh, yes. And when, when they come through our place, well, our farm, they would do our, cut our wheat for us. Oh, yeah. We'd ask them where they were headed, and they'd tell us they're headed to Shelby. Oh, yeah. Really? Literally. That's where they were going to end their season was in Shelby. Yeah. I'll be there. What a small world. Isn't that crazy? And I was nine years old at the time. You were nine, season, yeah. Right? I mean, that was a big deal because, you know, I'm on a farm in Oklahoma out in the middle of nowhere, right? And all these, all these trucks and these combines, these big, beautiful combines and these big trucks, they all start showing up, you know, right? And this thing is like a convoy, man. They've got campers and everything. And they would set up, they'd set up camp right there on the home plate. Yeah. And they'd cut our wheat for a few days and then on their way. And they were headed northbound and they literally started a couple of years, these this cruise crews that we have that ended up in Shelby, they started cutting uh, rice down in down in Louisiana. 
Oh yeah, in the rice paddies down yeah. in Louisiana, they would cut rice down there, and then and then wheat, and then right, they they go all the way up to the all the way up the plains and end up in Shelby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that one, yeah. Custom combo. Yeah. There's a number of guys that I'd meet in life later on, and I'd say, Where are you from? Kansas, whatever. It was a custom combo. Yeah. Yep, came up here, loved it, and came back, met yeah. a girl, married her. Yeah. You know, or another, a lot of other people I met, they'd, they'd be from somewhere, you know, in the U.S., somewhere, and I'd say, Air Force, Great Falls, Montana, came back. That's right, they'd say. Because yeah. Great Falls has an Air Force base. Yeah. And, uh, oh, let me tell you that story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also worked in a, a band for a while. Yeah. In, uh, we were three or four pieces, you know. And Shelby, well, we played a lot of different clubs. So I'm doing the radio thing. I'd, I'd go do a ball game, and then I'd go down and join the guys in the band, you know. What'd you play? Till 2 o'clock in the morning. I played, started out in the big old stand-up bass. Yeah. Daddy's saying bass, you know. Yeah, and, uh, got it. So then I went to the hard body, but uh, sang, and it was kind of the front man, you know. Yeah. We were fun. We had a lot of fun. But anyway, that, so one night, I'm... We're there at Shelby, which is on I-15, of course, goes right into Canada. And the reason I say that, uh, there were about four guys sitting there at a table, I noticed, and uh, they were enjoying the music and just something. We took a little break. <clears throat> Guy comes over and he says, uh, you're with a local radio station, aren't you? I says, yeah, <laughs> I am. He says, I know. He says, You'll never know how I happen to listen to your station and know your voice. I says, nope. He was in the Canadian Air Force. And the Canadian Air Force and the United States Air Force used to join with a, there was a name for that, for our two countries would get together. Yeah. And they would come down and do maneuvers with the guys down out of Great Falls. Yeah. So he says, when we're coming down to do our whatever they do, he says, I'm at 40,000 feet, and he says, I would have my ADF on, a less called Automatic Direction Finder, uh, navigation, you can tune in a local radio station, and you'll need a point right at that station. And really? you can use it to navigate an airplane. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, this guy says, I listen on ADF. He says, when we're down here, I listen to your station, and that's how I knew you. Oh, I, when I tell that story, I says, I got a guy that heard me from 40,000 feet in the air. He happens to be in a club in Shelby, Montana. Here's my voice comes over and says, I know you. That's one of my weirdest ones. That is so, yeah, so you're, you're, so literally you're on the radio, right? Yeah. And you're imagining that you're broadcasting out to all these what was it, eight counties or some? some yeah, about five counties. Five yeah. counties, right? That's so you're the farmers. Right, so you're broadcasting out to these five counties. You're thinking this way. Yes. This guy walks I, up to I, you and goes, I was up there, <laughs> and I'm listening to you up there, right? Now all of a sudden you're thinking, who in the world, who else is listening to me, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, that kind of expands your world a little bit. Can I, I know we're just jumping all over the place here, but... Let me tell you about voice recognition, how, how amazing thing, how our voices are, are remembered. Later on in my life also, back in the late 70s, mid 70s, I, I also ended up doing horse track announcing. Track really? race, race announcing. Really? 
Oh my goodness. If you want to hear that story quickly. <laughs> Look, they had Shelby had a local four county fair each year, but we had horse races part of the county, four days part of the fair, four days of horse racing. Wow. And that was a big part of it. Oh sure. And of course a lot of Montanans had and other states would bring in we didn't have the big fifty or hundred thousand dollar horses. You had, you know. But anyway, <clears throat> so we used to broadcast the horse races even. We, if it moved, we covered it. I love it. So we would set up equipment up there in the grandstand on top where the where the guys doing the track announcing, yeah. the racing stewards, the photo guys. So we would be up there each year with our radio equipment and tape a race. You couldn't do them live because of off-track betting. You'd right. have to delay them 15 minutes. So I got to know this uh, guy that did the announcing for the races, uh, Norm Amundsen was his name, big deal. He did it for a lot of years. So all of a sudden, Norm tells the fair board, he says, I, I can't, I won't be able to do the races. Uh, I'm taking a job over near uh, Spokane, Washington, mm -hmm. or in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, bigger tracks. Well, what are we gonna do, you know, for an announcer? So I don't know why Norm thought of me, but he says, get Norris, he could do that. Really? And I had no idea, you know, I did a lot of play-by-play, -play, football and basketball and yeah. you know, some baseball. So the fur board, in fact, this Steve, this big rancher is on the fur board, he comes to me. He says, hey, he says, how'd you like to be our track announcer? I said, what? Yeah. I said, I'd have to learn it some way. Sure. I'd give it a try. It's completely different than broadcasting, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a different ballgame. So I said, well, if, if I could go visit Norman, kind of watch him and see how he does. Yeah, that's fine. So he got a hold of Norman. Yeah, bring him over to Coeur d'Alene. So Steve and his wife and I went over to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho one weekend. Norm, we go to the track. Norm takes me through. He says, I want to show you how they get, how they draw for the horses. He takes me into that. They, I'm on the backside where, where the horses are. He said, I want, I want you to learn this end of it too. So he did that. So we get upstairs and I'm alongside of him and just watching him call the races. Everybody's got their own little way of doing it. He used a monocle, you know, instead of a button. Yeah, he just used one, then he had a spotting sheet. He'd hold it like this and look at that with that eye. He'd look at it, jeez, how am I going to learn to do that? Well, that's interesting. So anyway, I watched him for a while, and then he kind of showed me how he lays out the horses and the colors. There's yeah. no way you can you can remember the names of the riders. Right. So you do it by color, you know. Each state has a certain color, so red is number one hole in white, and orange, black, whatever. So I make up my own little spotting sheet and uh, I listen to Norm for a race or two and I get my own little tape recorder and I know I'm not gonna learn anything standing here. I gotta go find out what I don't know. Yeah. So I went clear down the other end of the grandstand. I don't wanna be around him where he's talking. Right. So I got my own little mic and I got my own spotting sheet and I got a program. So I fill out my sheet here and then I try to do, you know, how to do the parade, which one you bring the horses on. And Norm gave me a few tips on how you do this and that. So then they come out of the gate and just boom, you're just looking at, where do you start even, yeah. you know? So I start calling and this and doing that. And then I take the tape back into Norm and he'd listen to it. He'd say, well, 
that's good. You might want to do this. And he'd point out a few things. I said, okay, I'll go back and try it. Yeah. So I did three or four races, try to see what I could do. Boom, I go back to Shelby in a couple of weeks. I got the fair coming on four days of horse, the track announcement. And I'm brand new. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, little ego thing I got to be pretty good at. You know? awesome. And so then, and I met the darndest people. You ever want to meet colorful people, some of these old jockeys, these old horse trainers and owners, and these racing stewards would sit upstairs, you'd be right with them. And they would have more risk because in between races, unless you got a call or something where there's been a you know a fault, they had nothing to do. So they're talking. Yeah. And I heard more. I wish I could have written a book about some of the things some of these guys stories. Yeah. I can only imagine. So I'm uh, so then I get a call about two years later from. Uh, well, it doesn't matter, to go over and do the races at Kalispell, Montana. You were up yeah, there in Kalispell, the Kalispell. Kalispell, yeah. So, I, did, I found out later the manager of that fair, he came over to listen to me before he hired me. Or oh, he wow. said, I heard you, I've been over there. Wow. So, I started doing Shelby, Kalispell. Then they wanted me to do one out of Hamilton, Montana. So, I was doing about three different tracks in the wow. summer. Missoula wanted me to. I went there one time, but I, uh, I couldn't schedule it in. So anyway, Great Falls, which was about 80 miles from us, they did quite a race week during the summer. They had about 33 days of racing. Wow. Well, there's a guy comes up in the booth there while I'm at the fair, and uh, he's getting a, some lemonade or something, and somebody says uh, to him, his name was Dick Forrester. I didn't realize who he was, but he was the manager of the track down there. And somebody up there, one of the stewards says, Vic, do you, do you know Bob Norris? And his back is to me, and I'm looking the other way, and he says, no, but he's going to be our next announcer in Great Falls, he says. So I turned around. He says, would you go to work for us? I says, yeah. So now I'm doing, I signed a station on, do my production, drive 80 miles, do, you know, Wednesday night races, and then also... Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Was it Friday night? Yeah, I think four days a week I was doing races down there. Wow. Plus on the air. But it's intense. And I, and I had, but I had to have fun with it, you oh, know what I mean? One of the stories that came out, there was a gal that used to write a, 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 a magazine article about racing. And I didn't realize she caught up on this. She came and did a story on me. And it was kind of fun. <laughs> she remembers me telling, doing a story where, uh, we had a Futurity. I don't know if you've been around the rack. You got Futurity is a two-year-old horses. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of them are not heads, you know, they, they call them because they, they haven't... Of course, they got to be trained before the steward will let them run even because they got to learn to get in the gate and stand right. there. Well, we had a Futurity. This was at Great Falls, I remember. And I'd say, you know, the horses are loading, so-and-so's in, seven woman is loaded. Now, waiting on six and whatever. So we got them and said, they're, they're, you know, they're, what, forget what word they use now, but they're ready, they're in the, they're in the gates. And we wait and wait. And then no one would rear up and the jockey would have to get off and back. And it went on and on. And I'm sitting there waiting. And I says, <laughs> I says, some of these horses are going to be too old to run in this before we get it on. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> No, graduated from the majority. I had to do it. <laughs>
you know, I mean, there's a running theme here. I don't know if you're if you're if you're getting this, but there's a running theme here. You are always on stage. Yeah, Ruby. Yeah. You are literally your entire life story is you on stage. Yeah. So like we started out today talking about how you're always hearing people are always listening to you and potentially listening to you to hire you, right? And literally everything we've talked about has been, well, so-and-so heard me here, and so-and-so heard mm -hmm. me there, and they heard me here, and this happened, and the, right? Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, it's just, if you look at sort of the running theme of your life, it's that you've been on stage your entire life. I've tried to say humble robotics, and you know, I became a, a, a great believer later on in life. I hadn't always lived for the Lord, but I had a change in my life. Went through a divorce. Uh, it was, you know, good time, Bob, come and party. And uh, it led into some, some lonely times. Yeah. So I remarried and uh, I'm gonna talk, one thing I've jotted down here and I wanna talk about sure. what went on. One day, our, our four towers there, people ever going up north of Shelby, you're heading on the interstate. You'll see the interstate comes down straight like this and then it takes a curve and goes out and around because our four towers are sitting there, mm -hmm. and your towers, when you build those, you have a ground system that's all copper wire that runs out a long ways. Okay. You have to have this to the ground. Well, the highway department, when they wanted to put in the interstate four lane through there, they came through and they wanted to, what they said they would do is they'd have us roll up those ground wires. They could go through and then put dirt back on. And our owner of our station says, well, if you can make, if you can guarantee us when we put all these wires back out again that we could still get our signal exactly where it's got to be, we'll let you do it. Well, they looked that over and they had no way of guaranteeing that. So instead of cutting straight through, you'll see I-15 comes this way. And they said it's easier to go around you guys to make the job. Yeah, just a little bit of information. Anyway, my wife and I are driving going south one day on I-15, and I'm looking over at our towers. She says, what are you looking at? I says, well, Mark, who was the son of our manager, Mark Black, was in college then, but he was home for the summer. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know that Jerry had, he had hired Mark to paint the towers. Well, you normally bring in professionals, you know, but if we to save a dollar, sure. Jerry would. There we go. So <laughs> I'm looking up there, I don't see him. She says, doing what? I says, paint the tower. She says, I'd like to do that. My wife, I'd been in the business a lot of years. I'd climbed up a little ways on a tower once. That's the part of it. She, she wanted to paint the towers. Unbelievable. So I said, well, go tell. She tells Jerry that. Jerry says, you what? <laughs> what had happened, Mark? I said to Mary, or Jerry, I said, what happened to Mark? I thought he was painting the tower. Says he got up to the top and we used, you paint them orange, you know, that orange uh -huh. and white. Yeah. And you have to take this length of the tower and you divide it into seven portions. You yeah. have, you have the, like ours was about 30 feet of this color and yeah. 30 feet of that. Yeah, they were striped. So, yeah. yeah. So you had on one, on your belt, we had a gallon of orange paint hanging on this side. You had white paint hanging on this side. Okay. And we used these absorbent tint type mittens that you wash a car with, uh -huh. you know, you'd dip them in the paint and yep. you'd 
That's what I used to. That's what I used to do. Yeah. I, well, on the farm in Oklahoma. Yeah. My granddad had all these two um, iron two iron well iron oh. tube fencing. Oh yeah. And gates and all that, and sure. we'd have to paint them every few years. Oh right? yeah. Because they get rusty and all that. Sure. So we would paint them with this silver paint. It was an anti-rust type paint. Yeah. And we used those used bits. Those yeah. To, to do that. Wow. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. I used to paint. I used to paint sheds that way for him too. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Well, after, yeah, I mentioned the black my hair manager later on. He says, "We ever do that again? We're going to lay him down and paint him." Yeah. <laughs> so did she? Did she end up? So, so she ended up painting it. Well, Mark had gone up and he looked and he just threw that thing down and climbed back off and says, you're crazy, I'm not doing that. Because oh. you, so here's too far my wife. Huh? Was it too far up? They're 200 feet. But was it too far up for, for Mark? He just, yeah, I don't know what it like was. Like the whole thing was too much work? Yeah, too okay. high or didn't like the height. I'm not sure exactly what it was. So did she traipse up those towers? So well, those... then I ended up helping her, but she, she yeah she i got pictures of her then we we uh at that time had uh not the best communicant but we did have portable radios they were big old things like so i'd send one of those with her and i'd get i'd switch to my wife out of i-15 for a traffic report <laughs> <laughs> well let's switch out to lois up there on number three people two, would people would drive by and honk, right yeah. Yeah. When, when we meet people later in life, we moved to Yuma, Arizona, retired, they know about us, and they'd say, Lois, I remember when you were painting those towers. Oh, my God, that was so funny. Her dad was just about, went out of his mind. So not only that, did she go up and paint them, but we, we'd have, once in a while, we'd have a light out, you know. you got beacons on top, sure. and, and those beacons are about that big around, yeah. and they're on hinges, and you have to unhook them lay them back and then take the bulbs out mm -hmm. well yeah i did join her later and i climbed them too both of us we kind of got in shape after a while doing it but anyway when you're going up and yeah, neither one of us would use a strap or i see going up it's too much work and we've just climbed the darn thing but we both learned quickly when you're doing that don't look up because clouds are moving and you think you're going right over on your back. Just look straight out like yeah. this and don't, you kind of you get used to it after a while, plus the legs got in shape. But uh, anyway, here's my crazy wife, because we were going to host a cruise. We, you know, we didn't have any travel agencies, so we would we would put together on the air cruise, cruises, uh, the Caribbean, join mm -hmm. us. Of course, we would make after every fifth one you sold, you got a free one. Yeah. So we could pay for ours. So Lois and I hosted about three cruises plus trips to Hawaii. I didn't make a lot of money. Didn't matter. But the spiffs, the spiffs were something else. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she. So thanks to my wife and painting towers. I tell you, that crazy and wild. But uh, I love the thing about the traffic reports. Yeah, it's switched yeah. And, and when you got a green truck moving, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be big time. Right. right. Switch out to her. Yeah. Our eye in the sky. Yeah, eye in the sky. South Carolina 15, she's got a paint bucket on her butt, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so funny. I love that. That's, that's crazy. That's really cool. <laughs> Let me switch back to Helena, Montana, my TV thing. Okay. I started that and I forgot it. There we go. Okay. Uh, so, you know, when, so 
they were going to break me into uh, running the controls in the control room. Because mm -hmm. we only use one man in there. You had to control the sound. You got all these different mics. And when you get guests, yeah. you go around and you put little lapel mics on people. Sure. And, and then they'll bring you in a diagram that you're on A6 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I got this whole big panel of microphones and switches and mm -hmm. potentiometer pots on them. Handle that. Plus the video you had to control because if you, if you get, you had a couple of buttons here, if you got too much light, it would buzz your set at home. We had to do that manually. Mm -hmm. Every time the camera moved, you adjusted that, checked the sound. You were directing that cameraman. Okay, you're trying to do all these things. All at the same time. And it would take you actually a, a breaking period, about a week to learn all this oh, stuff. Sure. You got all the, so my brother, my brother-in-law uh, was a good engineer and Dick had worked uh, He'd worked half the night on the on the transmitter to get a, a better picture. You know, he's, he'd, he'd worked real hard. Well, we had a manager that halfway was an engineer, but not not technically as good as he should be. Well, Dick, my brother, laughing, he had quite a temper. But the manager, Bruce, is sitting out in the front office and watching what we call our panic period. Mm -hmm. Panic period is when everything's live for a half hour. You get sports, you get news, you get guests. So it, it's everything very intense and it takes a lot of work. So Dick says, well, come in. And so I, I brought a chair in, I sat alongside of Dick and he hadn't had time to explain much of anything to me. And about that time, the manager we're doing a live show. Manager Bruce comes into the control room. Here's Dick sitting there doing this. This manager reaches right over Dick and he starts grabbing controls and looking at meters. And Dick had worked on it and he, like he's telling Dick how to adjust that picture. Mm -hmm. Dick takes his headset and, and his brother Bob is on camera, mm -hmm. takes that headset, throws it on the thing, grabs that manager by the neck and he's getting lifted off the floor. He said, dude, don't ever touch those controls when I'm doing it. And Bruce says, Dick, you're choking me. He said, you got right I am. Boom, sets him down, out the door he goes. Wow. I'm sitting in this, that's my break into television. You're now sitting there by yourself. Yeah. And you're now in control of that control panel. Yeah. My brother, wow. his brother, wow. Bob, his ah. brother Bob hears the racket through the glass, even because we got a big glass studio. We're looking yeah. out into the yeah. production area. Looks at me and points to my head, put the headset on because mm -hmm. we could talk to our cameraman. He says, What's going on? Yeah. He has to be quiet. What's I, says, ruckus, I says, Dick's killing Bruce. <laughs> Unbelievable. This brother Bob, he, he told that story the rest of his life on this. So, Bob, he, he, he says, Okay, this. I'm gonna leave my camera, just don't worry about it. He comes in the control room, breaks it up. Dick, he grab, grabs his license off the wall and he's out of there. Wow. And Bob looks at me, he says, you think you could run that thing? And I, I watched over their shoulder a little bit of what they do. I said, well, I'll give it a try. So I got us through that. Unbelievable. Yeah, that, that's, that's, like baptism, that's like baptism by fire, you know? <laughs> That was my break into television. Oh yeah, and my and my break into my first commercial on television was this. That's before I even got into the television side. 
I wandered one day into the studio, everything, your commercials were live. Yeah. Well, one of our sales guys was a real character. He he had the Buckery Food Stores as a yeah. sponsor. And uh, he would, but he would come in when he knew there was a commercial, he'd come in and do the commercial. Yeah. Well, so here, Sack was oranges and apples and all kinds of stuff. And I just happened to walk in there and I'm like, and all of a sudden, ironically, the guy that was working the TV side, I, I had met at Brown Institute back in Minneapolis. He ends up off the TV station in the element. Wow. Big John, we call it. He pushes the PA button, you know. He says, Bob, so-and-so isn't here to do that commercial. He says, can you do that Buckley commercial? So they, one of the camera guys, he grabbed the mic and slept it around me. And all I know is I got to do a one-minute spot live about this. And thing. all you're doing is wandering through I the studio. I just through. I'm a radio guy. Right, and just, right. And I got it. Next thing, I turn around and boom, I'm on camera. <laughs> I, and, of course, me, I love that. To me, TV was so boring. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I'm taking these. I'm throwing them in there. Hey, this week, these oranges are only... They were high, higher up, but we just roared them. I'm having fun with right. this thing. Right, the price just came down, baby. <laughs> and we got all done with it. This guy's in the control. What was that? Yeah. That's your commercial you wanted. What in the world that? ever possessed you, right? Yeah. So. Well, you got to have fun with it. I don't know why I think. So, back in those days, I don't know if you were watching the weather guys, we, we had a big weather board that had all those cities in Montana, mm -hmm. Great Falls, Bozeman, Missoula, Kalispell. So it always looked pretty clever. You'd go around and you'd say, in Kalispell right now, it's 37 degrees, Great Falls. You know, you pick it right off like you memorize it. Mm -hmm. Well, we'd go alongside of that name on, on the map and just draw, write the number on there ahead of time, you yeah. know. But the people at home didn't know it. Yeah. So anyway, we had a... One of the guys who did weather, Jim Larson was his name. Jim was a good guy, but he, he had some ego. You know, a lot of people do. It was a real snowy night, wet snow coming down. And uh, while Jim's doing the weather, the, back in those days, you had to use so much lighting on stuff because cameras weren't near as sensitive there. So you couldn't see when you're sitting here doing news, you couldn't see beyond the camera. It was all black back there. So you, so you could walk back there and nobody here could see it. Right. That's the reason I say that because I opened the window when I on the ledge and I got a great big gob of wet snow. Mm -hmm. And I told the camera guy, we had two cameras by then. I told I told the, one of the camera guys, I said, you're all, you got it because I'm going to leave for a minute. So hang on. If you don't, I mean, that cameraman has to know he, he's live. You right. can't be swearing. Right. So, I could, it was great. I stood right behind the camera guys and I waited for Jim to say, and right now in Helena, it's snowing. And I let that big, great, big gob of snow, boom, hit him all over the weatherboard, all over his glasses. He's <laughs> getting a little fun in this TV. You did that on live television? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. How do you react? He was a little upset, but we right, had more comment on that. You know, it was wow. perfect. You know, that was so cool. And, uh, so anyway, so then uh, a guy that uh, had worked radio before was but was in sales. His name was Blair Morrison. Uh, Blair and I got to be pretty good friends. 
had a lot of fun together. He had a great sense of humor. He's very creative in his sales work. He comes to me and he says, let's you and I do a morning. This is before local TV or anybody that I know of back in the early 60s was doing anything live early morning. Mm -hmm. Came to me with the idea, he says, let's do a morning breakfast show. He says, I'll, I'll, I think I can trade out the breakfast with the local Placer Hotel. We'll get a chef to come down and cook and we'll have guests on and have breakfast at the same time. <laughs> breakfast with Bob and Blair. I said, you gotta be nuts. But you know, the more we thought about it, what a great way to get involved with the community yeah. and have fun. Yeah. So he goes to the management with that idea. And this here same Bruce who but got choked to death by my brother-in-law. That guy killed him. That guy killed him. I used to imitate this manager. And I'm, Bruce, I love you, but I used to imitate him. He's a little humpback guy, and he'd go, he'd come to me, hi, hi how's our star today? You say, you know, and stuff. So I, if I didn't do that to the gals in the morning when I walk in, they'd make me go back out and come back in and do my Bruce routine. <laughs> you know? But anyway, so... Uh, he goes to that Bruce. Nah, I was good. Nah. So Blair came to me, and you know what we did? Which they used to, radio guys used to do that. We bought our own airtime. We bought an hour of time, five days On a TV. week. Yeah, off the rate card. Wow. And then we went out and sold it separately. Wow. Ooh. There were some big radio markets where some announcers did that and late stations about lost it because that, that morning guy was so popular. Yeah. Yeah, so they had to be very careful, but this Blair had that idea. Wow. So we went in and bought time and they said, well, okay. So we had our own breakfast with Bob and Blair in the morning. Gosh. Yeah. How long did that last? You mean time-wise? Yeah, so how long yeah, did Yeah, I guess we did that for about, three or four months and I don't know, I got, we were doing fine with it. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly why, but we just kind of both got tired of it because it was work, you know, we were both pulling our regular shift suit and come down, we had to wash our own dishes there at the station in the bathroom yeah. of all things. I mean, wow. it was, yeah, I don't know why. And then I left then and went to, got out of the business for a while, became a vacuum cleaner salesman in Seattle, Washington. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. And then, then I went down, my daughter was just a baby. Then I went down to one of the managers of the vacuum outfit. It was a watertight vacuum called the Rainbow. And, yeah. and, I, and I got to be a district manager in that. And then one of our guys I worked with, they, Parents Institute down in San Francisco, hired him to come down and set up their salespeople. I was doing a pretty decent job at it, another guy, so he talked us into going to San Francisco to sell kids encyclopedias. Wow. I went down there. That was the biggest, dumbest move I ever made in my oh, life. Really? Lost my car. Oh, no. I had left KSCM two years before that, yeah. went to hell and everything. Yeah. I lost my car. I, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't do it. And it was terrible. In fact, this is a true story. I had, I was going to go to work for a tire shop because I had met a guy that lived in the same apartment. So, but it was 20 blocks away. I had to walk clear down here. And I'll tell you what, this guy, I think about it the rest of my life. This guy's like my father. 
I go in there and they needed a guy to mount truck tires. Mm -hmm. Well, here I've been in radio and sales. Right. I used to be on the farm. But he looked at me and says, I tell you what, I'm going to do you a big favor. I'm not going to hire you. <laughs> said, this job Thanks a lot. I, need, <laughs> I, I needed that favor today. I'm, I'm broke. I'm right. No kidding. He said, Bob, you can't do this kind of work. Yeah. You don't. He said, why don't you go back to do what you were trained in, yeah. what you were in? I'm walking back down, back yeah. to the apartment. I thought, why don't I go back in there? Because yeah. Jerry and I had left on kind of a, although we managed to saw each other after that and kind of. So I go back home and tell my wife, I said, how'd you like to go back to Shelby? She said, well, do something. She was awful good, my first wife, bless her heart. Yeah. We didn't fight, we just kind of separated. But anyway, that's another story. She says, well, we got to do something. I have even call Jerry Black, clear back at Shelby, Montana, and KSCN. I, Mike, do not have enough money to make a phone call. Wow. I didn't even have a dime. It cost a dime to call an operator. Yeah. I borrowed it from the guy I knew in the apartment. Can you talk about getting down to stupidity? I wouldn't call my folks, I was too proud. Yeah. Didn't want them to know that I'd gotten myself into such a bind. Yeah. My daughter was still, you know. And so I called Black and I called him Collect. <laughs> Collect called from Robert Norris in Oakland, California. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So I call him up and say, are you looking for an announcer? By gosh, we are, he says. Although he lied, he let a guy go, man. I look back at it, he is. But Jerry and I, we got along great. And I worked hard when I was there. Oh, I'll sure. give him that. Yeah, we are, he says. I says, well, I, I says, oh, by the way, I don't have any money and I don't have a car. Right. <laughs> well, how much is that going to cost? I says, I don't know. So anyway, went and found out and he wired the money out and my wife and I and our baby rode the train from Oakland, California back to Shelby. Wow. Didn't have a house, didn't have a car. One of the salesmen from the station met me there at the train. Bob, you're gonna stay with us for a while till you find something and whatever. And I was walking the I'm walking to work and then I uh in fact it was a guy at local newspaper who did an article, a picture of it was my wife keeps a lot of these clippings. And that, I had a pair of shoes that I worn the sole out because I walked to work every morning. I wasn't that many blocks, but just kiddingly, something me. I, the way I worked on the air, if something I'd done or did for the day, I'd bring it up, you know. I sure. said, oh, I'm talking to people who live on the north side of Shelby over here by the Bitterroot School. I said, somebody broke some glass on the sidewalk. You got a poor radio announcer that lives on that block. And when I walk there, I get glass in my. So I stopped to have a beer that night or something or after a mission. There's a guy that owns a business there. He slides me, throws 15 cents over. He says, here, go buy yourself a pair of shoes. <laughs> so that's he heard you on the that's our, Yeah, he could be. Yeah, he said, here, go buy yourself a pair. I don't know why he had only had change lane or 15 cents. Right. So, of course, big mouth me, I got to tell about what happened. Right. I'm telling about. 
I got 15 cents to throw it, you know. Not that I didn't even did do it to beg it, I did it to have fun. Right. I, but I wouldn't accept more than 25 cents, I think. Mm -hmm. But people were sending me money, and I finally got like $15. And this guy, to this day, I got this Western Breeze. Norris gets his new Brogans, and he's got a picture of me. He came down to Shelby, I had my feet up on the thing. Here's a picture of me with these bottom of my shoes. <laughs> that small town radio yeah. USA. Exactly. They were all involved. They were interested how I was doing that my shoe. Money. It gave them a reason to talk to you. Uh -huh. I found that out. People would come and talk, and if they yeah. had a reason, you said something on the air. Well, that's something. Yeah, I don't know why I think of these things, but uh, well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did, and thank you so much yes. for being on this program. This has been a lot of fun. I did yes. not imagine that it'd be this much fun, but I knew spending time with you would be. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for being on the Mike Lynn experience. Thank you. Thank, thank you. For and thank you for this. 42 years of radio mm -hmm. service. That is just unbelievable. I know you were honored for 30 years and all that, but you're just an absolute legend, Bob, and you're the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. I mean, I love spending time with you. I, and I cannot thank you enough for doing this. I wrote more than that for you to say about me. I know. See there? And the checks in the mail. <laughs> I love you, buddy. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.